This is Slashers, your new favorite podcast about your new favorite horror media. My name is Jake, and with me as always are my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and cohorts, Adrian, Adam, and Doug. Guys, say hello to the mutant goons from beyond. Hello, all you wonderful mutant goons. Let's get our slimy squishiness on for this one. There is no Adam, only Zool. Calm down, Ivan Reitman. Let's get to aid. Um, okay, well, I, I can't follow that up, but it's Adrian. Hey, guys. <laughs> you know what you could do this, Adrian? You could just impersonate a dog, which would be very <laughs> accurate to Sigourney Weaver's audition. And that would be one way to one-up Adam. So for the Patreon patrons, exclusively for the video option, why don't you impersonate a dog for a couple minutes? Oh, wait, I, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's either that or sleep like four feet above the sheets. Your choice. See, that's the other option. Oh, that would be more fun. I realized I just sounded like I was like objectifying her like, hey, like this is like an episode of Mad Men. Like, why don't you act like a dog? But I was <laughs> referring to an audition from over 30 years ago, if you don't mind. Uh, We're still being nice, we promise. Sure. 37 years ago. Does that make you feel old AF goons? Ain't getting any younger. I wasn't alive 37 years ago. Neither was I. Sorry. Only Adam was and his old man shoulder. It's a very sexy shoulder because I thought it was a nude at first. (laughs) Of a weird bruised butthole crease. Now, it should be obvious, all things, including the episode description and title, we're doing Ghostbusters. Reason being, there is no April on Slashers, only Zool. So we're going to be doing Ghostbusters 1 this week. Two next week, the animated series is the week thereafter, and all of the video games the last week of this month, plus a Patreon bonus episode, which I'm very excited to torture you all with. So, Adam, this is your baby. This is literally your favorite movie of all time, correct? Yeah, yeah, truly. I mean, this movie is half of the reason I am who I am. I I have only Zool tattooed across my knuckles. I've seen this movie, I'm going to say it, well over 200 times. Anytime I watch this film, it's always just perfect every time. I can't think of a movie that just makes me smile more. I love it. And so, Doug, Adrian, do you have a similar experience and investment into this film? I do actually. So this is uh, this is kind of an interesting one. But growing up, uh, my grandma had a bunch of these, like the old VHS tapes. So we watched Ghostbusters, and she also had the Sega Genesis video game of Ghostbusters. Yeah. So I always used to play that, and then watch this movie, and then um, it was weird because this one, part two, and then Little Shop of Horrors. I always thought like we're one one universe. Like, oh, that would be so great. Yeah, because in the Sega Genesis game, you fight Audrey too. Like that's one of the bosses, and, and then Lewis is in there. So it's weird. Yeah. Growing growing up, I just kind of put all three of them in a blender that makes a lot of sense actually i love the shared cinematic universe i also kind of wish this was a musical now bill murray is also in little shop as well as that glutton for punishment in the dentist's office so and his character from caddyshack was almost in this movie oh yeah as the uh as the homeless person yep. with dan Aykroyd. Yeah. when when lewis tully's running through central park it was originally to be them but then the studio was like hey this doesn't make sense why would you be in the movie and then in the movie again Uh, apparently the Nutty Professor wouldn't come out for another 20 plus years. So the whole playing yourself, wait, coming to America though. Anyway, Mm. neither here nor there. The cinematic universe being as it is, that Sega Genesis game. You excited to talk about it for the last week of this month? Shameless. Oh, I am. I even got. I even got my copy with me here. But uh, yeah, that like I said, the video, the Sega Genesis one, and then Ghostbusters two and Little Shop of Horrors. They all kind of mixed in and. uh, yeah, it's, it's weird, but this movie is one I, I watched constantly. Weirdly enough, I've actually, uh, I never owned a, a tape copy of the first one growing up. I was given Ghostbusters 2 on a big clamshell VHS 
Um, that it was a birthday gift. And that's the one I watched over and over. Yep. And over. So it's weird. I have a closer connection to part two more than part one, but part one's still a phenomenal film. Yeah. My relationship with two and one is very similar to my relationship with Gremlins one and two, where two, I just remember being on all the time. It was so brightly colored and especially the climax and so forth. But this is one where I appreciate this one so much more as an adult and also What's great about it is it's not a holiday film. So unlike Gremlins 1, I never just watched it on Christmas. Like I have probably caught up in terms of the amount of times I've seen both. But definitely as a kid, I was all about Ghostbusters too. Adrian? Um, I love these movies. They're so cute. They're probably like the first scary thing that I watched. And I remember um, my favorite thing to do when we would come to Florida was go to the Ghostbusters show and see all of the ghosts and and like Slimer would be like floating around and stuff. So that was a lot of fun. So I have really good memories with this. And it's a little sad. That was Universal, right? Yeah. That, had that ride. Yeah. yeah. That's the one you're talking about. Yeah. 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 It was a show and mm -hmm. it was really cool. Yeah. And so um, I always have a special place in my heart with this one. And then, of course, um, whenever they're on Netflix, I usually watch them. So I didn't own it until this time. I'm like, I'm just going to buy them because I love watching them whenever they're on. I'm like watching the first one the other day and Dan's like, I've never seen this one. I'm like, what? who are you? <laughs> right? When people say exactly. they've never seen Ghostbusters, <laughs> I just like give him that little. I mean, little he's push. seen part two. Yeah. Like he's seen part two with the, with the painting. Cause everyone's mm. scared of that damn painting. Right. Like that's the most terrifying. Viga! Yeah. So. I saw it in theaters <laughs> as a five-year-old and my God, that subway scene was traumatizing. What does he fucking think the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is from then? Like, they don't even I do a hacky flashback into. I have no idea. Couldn't tell you. I don't know how you live your life and not see it. I <laughs> thought it was that tire guy. Huh. The Michelin <laughs> the Man. Michelin Man. <laughs> yeah. Now, Abe, did you, because you're Floridian travels, I assume that you went to Universal. Did you actually get to see the Ghostbusters, quote unquote, versus Beetlejuice, like live action show they used to do? Yeah, that was the one I was talking about. That's right, because mm. Beetlejuice was in there, too. Oh, my God, that's so funny. See, like, I, that's how obsessed I am. I never got to actually see that. I just know that other people see that, and I'm green with envy and ooze. I know, they don't do it anymore. There was two versions of the show. There was with and without Beetlejuice, I believe, there, right? Yeah, there are a few different ones, uh, mm -hmm. which is, it's really interesting when you get to the live stuff, because despite being well lit and out in the open, there's not a great amount of footage when it comes to it, and much less planning, because so much of it is improvisational in nature, versus yeah. when you get to like attractions, when you're going through, there's schematics or stuff that you can do. Actually, Extinct uh, amusement park attractions is super fascinating. If you ever want to go down that rabbit hole, there's some great YouTubes on it and just vlogs in general. Been there. It's interesting. It's really interesting. It validates you because you're like, man, am I, am I fucking crazy or do I remember this? And then you go and you're like, yes, thank you. This did happen. That and old commercial montages, like yeah. it, like where it's like three or three hours of commercials from like this specific year from the 80s. It's like, okay, that did happen. Yeah. The ones that hook me are those fucking like now that's what I call music or like music compilations where I have like a playlist in my brain, but each song is like five seconds. Yeah, it's weird. But Adam, getting back to you, this is your baby. So I want to cue it to you. Would you like to start with the statistics or would you like to override me? You know what? I want to leave that up to you. I'd rather go into uh, the slay by play and the recapitation a little bit more. Okay, so. Let's talk about the release date. We're looking at, oh, excuse me, strike that. Let's look at the budget of this film. 25 million to 30 million. Isn't it fun how you could just kind of like lose $5 million in accounting somewhere? But grosses, <laughs> there are stats everywhere. The, the number that's commonly thrown around, 
grosses over $300 million worldwide. And Bill Murray made not a dry bit of dick lint for this film. We'll get into it. But that fascinates me endlessly. Uh, did you know this was the most successful comedy of all time until Macaulay Culkin put aftershave yeah. on his fucking little face? I saw that. That was cute. And I don't even... Is, is Home Alone that funny? I don't even think it's that funny. It's not. It's not. It's like, not. <laughs> I don't understand this. Second one's better, I think. Like this being a movie oh, with yeah. ghosts flying around and imaginary contractor jobs where these people are hired to go remove said ghosts is more realistic than that hodgepodge of a story that could never happen that is Home Alone. Kevin! It's like there, there needs to be a perfect storm for them to get to Paris and not have this kid. Like, it just doesn't make sense. Ghosts make more sense. Yeah, well, but Catherine O'Hara is in it, so you can't. Oh, you she's know. always lovely. I'm never gonna Moira. knock that. Of course, <laughs> she's quite good in everything. Now the movie comes out June seventh, nineteen eighty four. You know what else comes out that same weekend? Oh, I know, I know, I know. Please, can I tell you? Can I say it? Gremlins, right? Hence me going into my Gremlins to the new batch thing because I've had it yeah, on my brain the whole time. Like, Imagine being a child with five dollars in your pocket and you can buy one ticket. I can't. That's Sophie's choice. Which movie do I throw <laughs> onto an electrified fence? God damn it, that's tough. Um, yeah. Did you pick Gremlins? No, I'd probably pick this because I don't really like seasonal movies all that much. But let's just do a couple other movies from 84. Friday the 13th, the final chapter, 16 Candles, Firestarter, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Uh, we had, what else? There, the Karate Kid was the weekend after. I don't care about that thing. And Conan the Destroyer came out the same month. Like, you motherfuckers were spoiled. Spoiled. Summer of 84, baby. Legendary things, including uh, Years Truly came into this world. <laughs> I'm just saying. How many Fred Decker movies came out? Fuck boy. <laughs> well, I mean, two horror films. I mean, he worked on... <laughs> <laughs> Carry yeah. the three. Uh, so... <laughs> Sorry. I love you so much. I, well, so I love that much. I have friends that have a skin now because like I tortured Adrian mercilessly before we started recording and I gave her the worst guilt trip that anybody aside from my mother has ever given. And she's sitting here with a smile on her face. And I just did the same to Adam. Thank you, guys. I feel I dumbfound you with my skin sometimes. Yeah. You're like, come on, that should have worked. It's like when uh, the the boxer's hitting Homer and Homer's just standing there and he's exhausted. That's a, you're homerizing me with your resilience. 105 minutes of bliss. One movie that gets a pass. I love it. I don't care. It doesn't have to cut it. Don't have to watch it at one point, whatever speed. Perfect. What do you guys think? Well, honestly, I think this movie is, um, it feels less than 105 minutes. It's so weird because you watch, you pop it in. The first few minutes, uh, you're getting into Dana Barrett's apartment and the eggs are frying. You know what I mean? It just runs yeah. so fast. And to think they cut scenes out of here, too, it's like, man, I, I kind of want those deleted scenes. Yeah. And film scenes, not just the script scenes, because we'll get into it. This script is alive. Release the Reitman cut. Okay, we're going to get into that. <laughs> I have I have a whole I have a whole riff about it. Aid, what do you think? Is this movie, is this a, a comfortable time for you? Yeah, I never thought it was too long. I, I always enjoyed it, even as a little kid watching it on TV. There's, I mean, the parts that you probably would think are boring, I always absolutely love. Like, you know, when he's shocking the kids at the beginning. And 
oh my God, is Bill Murray going to get me too with this beginning? Like, I remember him being so bad. He's so bad. In it's so bad. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's it's cute. Like, all the little, but all the little things and facets of the movie and all the little details that they have, like when Egon's going on and on about a Twinkie, like all of those things that you would think would be boring to a little kid are actually hilarious to a little kid, or at least to me. Weirdly, so right? Like, I, it always mm-hmm. magnetically held my focus. Like I said, I, I like the second one a little bit more when I was a kid, but even as a kid, I had a huge reverence. Econ has always been my favorite, which is the weirdest thing when you consider how like loud-mouthed and abrasive I am. But, Adam, you look like you have something <laughs> to say. I, I just want to say, yeah, I mean, as a child, I mean, this came out... Sh- Two months before I was born, but this movie was my babysitter for a number of years. Like, and I was just always magnetized. Fucking cable guy, I'm imagining here. Truly, man. But I used to stand in front of the TV with my plastic pack on, say, Mom, Mom, want to watch me do my job? Bitch never watched. In my fucking 20s to law school, I took a proton pack backpack that had the pencil case that was the wand. Oh, yeah, that was great. Love trying to get a doctorate with glared looks from a professor who not paid enough. Anyway, uh, directed <laughs> by one Ivan Reitman. And what I, I really appreciate Ivan Reitman. I think that there is a tremendous amount of deliberation in this movie. Every single thing, even the improv, I think, is deliberately included. This is a movie that you could really have adhered to a script to and lost a lot. And he was also very conscious about making our age group included in this because he recorded alternate takes with and without swearing so that you could get tv distribution he knew how it was going to be marketed he knew it could potentially become something bigger this wasn't like a marvel studios where you know there's going to be a fucking cartoon so we have to make it he knew it could happen so he gave you both like that's genius that's so incredibly ahead of its time yeah well the funny thing is i don't even know if the rating system on the even the because i bought the 4k of this before we watched and i have the tape I had the laser disc and the and the DVD. They all have different ratings. One of them's PG, one of them's G, one of them's PG thirteen. But they're all the same thing. So it's yeah. there's a big mix up there. That's interesting. So were they? Are they PG? Is it PG? Well, funny enough. So to Doug's point, Gremlins and Temple of Doom, which came out this same summer, this same month, in fact, helped create the PG thirteen rating scale because those were both PG. But they realized there has to be an in between because you can't have Mama scrambling a goddamn gremlin and a dude ripping out a still beating heart and have that be parental guidance so in terms of theatrical release yes this was a pg in terms of you know release on video by the time that you're getting to like the blu-ray 4k you're looking at a different mpaa actually the existence of an mpaa but it's so weird because on the back of the case it says pg when you pop it in you know how they get that blue screen it says pg 13 so i was like oh they still don't know yeah, I've seen a G-rated version myself, too, like you were saying. But Ivan Reitman, I feel, knew he had lightning in a bottle with this film, but I don't think he realized to what extent until just it exploded. Yeah. Because it, it's a legitimate phenomena. Truly. do 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 Phenomena. One of the other things that's kind of brilliant is the gag of the commercial. The commercial for this movie had a real phone number. Yep. Yeah. And then they it rang 24, I'm doing the quotes because everybody knows the stat, 24 hours a day, over 100,500 1, calls per hour for 24 hours for six weeks. And then in the theatrical cut, they had to do a 5-5. Five, five. I get it. But the thing is, I don't think, I think people miss it. They take it as a novelty. I take it as the genius of that marketing tactic 
brilliant. A little bit of Herschel Gordon Lewis industriousness for a movie that like this movie should never have even been when you go to uh, the original draft of this script. It's like, what? Space cops? Dude, it, it just no, <laughs> it, it's nothing of its original version. I mean, just down to the equipment. I mean, the the proton packs and just the wands. I mean, they were literal just metal rod wands that they flicked more like Harry Potter. Or like Minority Report, I heard another analysis, but the mm-hmm. pro the pack was added last minute, which Stephen Dane, credited as a hardware consultant, and his name is spelled incorrectly, and he's the guy who created the Proton Pack, the Ecto-1, the Giga meter, the uh, EKG meter. PKE meter? PKE meter, thank you. Psychokinetic energy. And the slime blower. He designed all of that, but he was a hardware consultant. And he's the guy who took the Ecto-1, which would have been black with purple headlights, to the white, awesome, I have four different action figures and a transformer of this white vehicle. I mean, blows my mind. The man had such a cohesive vision. Like, it's part of what I feel draws people to this film. It feels so DIY, down to the props, everything about it. And it feels very everyman in the sense that, in essence, these guys are exterminators. These guys are the Orkin men. And they're just going in their, their job site. They're smoking a lot of cigarettes. And they're punching out. And they're coming home tired. But it's like, these this equipment that they built, it, it looks like these guys did it in their garage, just working like mechanics. They have all kinds of pieces that you could just obtain at a Radio Shack or a Home Depot back then, just pneumatic pieces, capacitors, resistors. It's just, it really is such a huge part of the movie and um, just the vibe and just the realism it creates. Well, there's a certain charm to the idea that somebody could engage in like magnificent science from their garage. Like you look at like Explorers and a lot of these movies where it's like a kid like figuring it out, like, why do we like the kid from the Goonies, Data with the slick shoes? We like him because like we thought Gadgets. that we Yeah, we could do that. And that's one of the great things about this movie because it looks hodgepodge. The original idea would have been that they were like a state-sanctioned Spectre police force. Ugh. I don't want the fucking man coming around to me mansplaining about ghosts, fucking trying to suppress me, dog. None of that. I want the guy who is in direct contravention of the state. They had like riot gear helmets and stuff like that with visors. It's just like, oh, none of the charm whatsoever. They're going to tear gas passerby so that some state official can go pose with a ghost like a fascist prick. Anyway, Dan Aykroyd. Mm-hmm. Dan. The man. We love Dan. Oh, so good. Vodka connoisseur. He is of an ilk of spectral peoples. Mm-hmm. Grandfather Samuel, or excuse me, great grandfather. He commit like did seances and stuff. His grandfather Maurice tried to invent a crystal telephone because he worked for Bell Telephones, where he could commune with the dead. His dad had tons of books on spooks and specters, and so it's nice that I can think that one day, with all of my obsession of weird, gross, nerdy shit, that maybe my great 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 granddaughter will come up with the next Ghostbusters or a magnificent invention with regard to butt fucking. <laughs> Another interesting <laughs> thing that I uh, that always stuck with me, Dan Aykroyd was said to be on the uh, the spectrum of Asperger's, and I have I have family members that are also on the spectrum. And the thing that he used to obsess about was the paranormal and law enforcement. Those were his two things. I have a cousin that fixates over music and albums and stuff like that, but 
this just like I feel his obsession just by being who he was added such a depth to the realism of the world to just the plans that he had like each part of the proton pack has like purpose the cyclotron the iron arm and ladder and stuff like that it's it's just really interesting it feels real because there's been so much put into it isn't it funny that the guy who's on the spectrum is arguably the most normal ghostbuster aside from winston yeah like venkman is he clearly has sociopathic tendencies and like Egon obviously is way more, but then there's Ray who's just like kind of weird. And isn't it like interesting how we characterize people who used to be weird as like a diagnosis now? Yeah, just the line where Bill Murray is like, oh, not everyone's walking around with an unlicensed nuclear accelerator on their back. And he's just like, yep, switch me on. Yep. He's just, he's there for it. And the quaintness of Ray develops. Like, I love the fact that he just owns a little bookstore and does his own thing in the second one, too. Like, no delusions of grandeur. He just chipping away at it. And he's so charming. And I think that a lot of people would have not bet on themselves. They would have written a script and they would have sold a script. He wrote the script for himself after leaving SNL. This was his vessel. He made mm -hmm. less money to be in it. And now he's a legend because of it. Well. Obviously, he would have been a legend, but a much different degree of it. He's always going to be a nerd icon. Yeah, of course. Do any of you have that confidence? Would you go like, yeah, I could make an extra probably $100,000, but instead I'm going to make a little bit less and then live on and get residuals. Bunk! Yeah, I mean, because, yeah, and he's got this under his belt, and he also has that horrible uh, uh, act he did in Caddyshack 2. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, yeah, God. whatever. I'll get the thing for you. Oh, oh man. <laughs> Yeah, yep. that was nothing but trouble. <laughs> oh, that was a good one, too. He also had a cameo in Casper, uh, 1995. You remember that? Yep. Shared universe. That's weird. But mm -hmm. funny enough, mm. the people with Casper tried to sue because they said that Fatso the Ghost was appropriated in the Ghostbusters logo. They lost because you can't just own the intellectual property of a ghost, whatever. So he writes a script, and it is fucking weird, and nobody really likes it. They kind of do. It was titled Ghost Smashers. 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 And that was as an homage to Bob Hope's Ghost Breakers and Leo Gorsi and the Bowery Boys Spookbusters and Ghost Chasers. There was already a show called Ghostbusters and it had a man in a gorilla suit. How do we feel about that? Yeah, I, I appreciate the filmation show. I very I just recently learned that it had an old black and white movie that that originated from. It was a show. But, oh, wait, it was a TV show. It was a TV oh, show. And then to capitalize off of the success of Ghostbusters, they did an animation which filmation. That's why oh, Ghostbusters okay. cartoon show is the real Ghostbusters, even though they're not the real Ghostbusters, which you got to be like, ah, that yeah, pisses me off. Except for the fact fucky. They make 5% of all proceeds of Ghostbusters, though. That's the most successful thing that they've ever fucking done. Bank. Crazy. Wow. Could you fucking imagine? Because at the time, they're like, oh, I'll take 5% of your shitty movie. And Columbia's like, whatever. It's probably not going to make anything anyway. 5% of $300 million without having to expend anything. They didn't put anything into the cost of production for this. Yeah, I mean that's that, that's kind of like those um those asylum movies that you know grandma's rent. They're like, here you go, here's Transmorphers. Yeah, but in right. reality, they were the ones before actual Ghostbusters. So, hey, they're laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, man. Mm. But uh, yeah, I I had no idea that it was a series. I thought it was a movie back then, but it was an uh, like an ongoing series. From what I've seen online, unless it's just part and parcel into other things. But I believe I wasn't. 
yeah, like I wasn't sure if it was that or like uh, like serial pictures kind of thing. Like uh, they did like a series of movies, you know. No, 1975 then, TV series. It ran for 15 episodes. So maybe they did like screenings and stuff of it because of the novelty of it, because of how big Ghostbusters became. But I mean, could you imagine this movie under a different name? Would no. a rose by any other name be as sweet? <laughs> well, the funny thing is, uh, going back on the whole other name, because Yahira, uh, my girlfriend, she's from Peru, so she never knew the name was Ghostbusters. In fact, in Spanish, like she's only ever seen this movie in Spanish um, until you know we watched it on 4K. But it was always called to her Casa Fantasmas. So she's like, oh, I'm like, oh, we're going to watch Ghostbusters. Oh, Casa Fantasmas. Okay. So, so that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, House of Ghosts, which is weird. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, it's a firehouse of ghosts. So, so yeah, when she said, oh, Ghostbusters, it's like, oh, that's that's a weird name. I always thought it was House of Ghosts or Casa Fantasmas. So. Wow. It sounds fancy. It does. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot different. But, uh, I know. But, but, but the one thing, too, and I'd like to, I know we're not going to hit on the topic too much of the 2016 abortion, but uh, if you watch this movie again, the, the proton packs, like you said, the, the Ecto-1, all that stuff, there's no real explanation to it. They're just kind of there, but they take so much screen presence and you don't have to sit down and fucking explain everything. They're just yeah. kind of there. And then if you want to read into the lore later, you can. But I, I think that's what moves it so fast. Like when they're in the elevator doing their uh, like, oh, you know, the unlicensed nuclear accelerator on our back. Yeah. That that scene is is only a few seconds, but it, it does so much in terms of comedy explanation uh, and just oh. the characters themselves. And, and in the in the 2016 one, it was like a 15 minute scene of them explaining that it's like wrestling a gator. Get the fuck out of here. Yeah, fuck that fucking noise. They did more in two seconds with flipping it on and then the two of them inching into the corner of the elevator to get away from it than that whole scene. And that's one that's one shot. Yeah. One of the big things I think is the type of humor. This is humor that lets it speak for itself, but I think it's very of the time. If you put Ghostbusters 2016 back at that time, the style and methodology of humor can be subdued can breathe but look at modern humor like look at like 21 yeah. jump street that movie is so full of stuff and references and you don't have people delivering a straight line it's like a silly voice or something like that it, it so much of this like modern comedy is so just blinding with so many things it doesn't feel artful it doesn't feel like you know going back to kind of like jazz it sometimes it's notes you don't play sometimes it's that subdued feeling so you can get those peaks and valleys i don't think they if you put Ghostbusters out with no sense of sentimentality in 2016, do you really think it would succeed? No, which one? The original? Yes, the original. If you no. put the original version out in 2016 and you took out any form of sentimentality and you weren't sentimental towards it, do you think that compared to its contemporaries, it ever would have stood out to a $300 million film? No, I don't. Uh, if you cut the trailer right, I think it could do well. Yeah. I, I, I see I, a lot of kids that yeah. would see it boring. Uh, exactly. sadly to say, they'd say, eh, this is boring. There's not, oh, there's not too much uh, going on on screen. And like, if you watch it, there's not a lot of cuts. A lot of it's like simple takes, Long camera panning. Shots, yep. the, you know, new films nowadays, it's cut every few seconds. Cut, 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 yeah. cut. Why the fuck we're doing dialogue? Why are you cutting so much? I think seriously, the, yeah. the born ultimatum or supremacy, one of them, they did a, a measurement and the average shot is 1.9 seconds because it cuts so quickly and rapidly. Versus a movie like this, those like that breathing room, you just don't see. Like we talked about it going as far back as like the Tales from the Crypt episode, like breathing shots just don't exist. And I love this movie. I think that this would movie would hit us, our age group, because we lived through 80s and we lived through those movies. But I just mm -hmm. see like little kids being like, okay, 
But as soon as you give a little kid something, a cartoon, an emblem, something that like vests their interest, they already have to like kind of figure out what it's about. And I think that hooks them more because I can think of a ton of movies that are like of this era that kids don't have any sentimentality towards. Yeah. And I think it's important, too, to think about like their um, their attention span now with everything in your face as far as technology goes and all of the just everything at their fingertips, something like this, they're just never going to appreciate. And so it's sad that that's the case. And and that's probably why I enjoy movies probably from the 70s and 80s more because I like that breathing room. And so I get why, Adam, you don't like the 2016. But if people aren't shouting at the screen and there's not all this flashy stuff and Chris Hemsworth, you know, if he doesn't look damn fine in that movie... That, you know, people are not going to pay attention. Motherfucker doesn't save shit in that fucking abortion clinic dumpster fire. Fuck that Oh film. my god. You know, I would really wish you'd stop talking about abortion in such a negative light. Thank you very much. I called it an abortion clinic dumpster fire. That's the burning remains of babies. That's kind of <laughs> different, okay? It's a whole different abomination. <laughs> oh my god. Sorry to fact check you, Adam, about the Ghostbusters show. The reason I know about the show being the show from 1975 is Billy Barty, who you may recall, Gwildor. Uh, he played Rose Nyland's dad on Golden Girls. Uh, he was actually a character in the first episode of the show, which aired on September 6, 1975. Ta-da! Wasn't it in black and white? I could have swore it was so much earlier than that. That's so weird. I've seen production stills that are in black and white, but I've also seen production stills that are in color. I haven't been able to find a good quality of it, uh, be honest That's with probably you. it. It's probably the stills that are messing with me and my memory on it. Yeah. Mm. Back to where we were, we were talking about, uh, oh, abortions. And then I saw my children. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> so Great segue. Uh, but we'll go into this part. So in getting into it, you know, the original script was very bloated and costly. And so you bring in uh, Harold Ramis, who originally was just going to be a guy to help dial it in. Rain it in. Do we need this? Because originally Stay Puffed was going to be at the beginning. And that huge set piece was going to be one thing. And then you have so many added and, and oh, and big, big, big. And they cut it down. And it's amazing to me to think, that, imagine like Battleship with Rihanna. But they bring in Harold Ramis to like bring it down and make something good out of it. That's kind of the vision I have of this. Yeah, it's it's interesting how big and just how massively like they wanted to make this film. Like you were saying about the start off with the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. They wanted to have him like rising out of the East River. And it's just so much. They were saying they were given a budget of four point six million and what Dan Aykroyd wanted to do would have cost him like 40 plus. Easy, yeah. So but what they did as far as just reconceptualizing these things and just replacing the scenes in different areas, dude, they made that just tenth of a budget they thought they would have needed just work flawlessly. And just everything in camera, this this movie is such a masterclass for so many reasons with effects. And so this will kind of go into the characters that we have in it. I think one of the things that I think truly helps the rewrites of the film, the fact that a lot of these you know, characters were created for specific actors who, through one reason or another, couldn't be in it. Mm -hmm. uh, starting with Peter Venkman, that was going to be Belushi, but Belushi yep. died. So I think it's a lot easier to cut some of those scenes and some of that bloated dialogue and some of those like character moments when you're not connecting it to one guy. You're coming in with Bill Murray after the fact. Do you guys agree? Exactly. I mean, you, you let Bill Murray do his improv thing, which they did, which turned out 
so successfully and they cut it down to having Belushi as a cameo as basically Slimer. And I mean, they still kept the heart in there, but they trimmed it on down. Now, I usually don't get into alternate casting stuff because I think that usually it's a lot of bullshit. A lot of it is people saying, oh, you know who is considered for this? Everybody. If it's an open casting call, everybody is considered for something. I fucking hate that. But Michael Keaton was cast and it wasn't until Bill Murray expressed interest that he actually got the part and superseded Keaton. I have looked this up in multiple different areas and it's completely confirmed from what mm -hmm. I could see. And I had never really saw it until getting into this. And I was like, you know, that's a damn fine choice. This is a pre-Beetlejuice Michael Keaton, but I think that that could have been really interesting. What's really fucking funny is Bill Murray was being thought about for fucking Batman. Which makes perfect sense. He has the physicality for it. <laughs> Just, yeah, I, I, I want to go to the multiverse where the Keaton busters exist. I, I would love to see that. Like, I can't even imagine... Yeah, Bill Murray as like an Adam West parody would be fucking great. But with so a six-pack ab plastic suit, uh, that's something I'm not buying. No, thank you. Not at all. Not mm. at all. So no. I had mentioned it earlier, and you guys all kind of looked aghast, but Bill Murray did not make money for this movie. He leveraged this role into being able to make another movie for the studio. So he made a, a remake of a film called The Razor's Edge, if I'm not mistaken, which is about a you know, quote unquote, shell shocked World War One veteran who looks to find the meaning of life, which uh, it's 129 minutes long. And you know, my standard of 90 minute films. So I found this from Janet Maslin of the New York Times describing it as slow, over long and ridiculously overproduced. So I wonder why Bill Murray <laughs> has a little bit of hesitancy to come back and do other Ghostbusters things when he made nothing off the first one except a failure that he was lauded for. Huh? Huh, dude, stop trying to do your freaking indie <laughs> drama pieces, man. I hate every one of them. I'm sorry. I dare say that this movie was lost in translation. <laughs> that movie uh, was a budget of 12 million, made 6 million. He co wrote it with the director whose name is John Byram. Not Byron, Byrum. Not a fan. Well, that's probably why he was so hesitant on Ghostbusters, too. But I think that, uh, you know, I don't know why. I think that's a great one, too. <laughs> I think it's a lot of resentment, too. Yeah. And you hear it a lot when it comes to later stuff like Groundhog Day. The resentment that was building between him and Ramis when it came to, oh, well, Bill Murray's a star. Oh, well, Bill Murray's a star only insofar as Ramis is doing it because other Bill Murray's things aren't as good as when he's not involved. And so there was this, like, antagonism that was going on between them. And I think that it probably hurt his conscience to know his biggest success is also his biggest monetary failure, technically, which is tied to a huge failure because the Razor's Edge was him trying to be a dramatic actor, which didn't work. And it's all dependent on Ramis in a lot of ways, who, let's be real, didn't even want to be in this movie. Can we talk about that? Adam? Yeah, dude. That's a mind fuck and a half. I mean, Ramis was just brought on to write it and he was he just saw this role of Spangler and he was like, you know what? If we're going to do this, I'm going to do this because I'm the one that's going to pull it off. And dude, fucking icon. My favorite Ghostbuster. Yeah, I was reading too. He doesn't even smile uh, throughout the first movie a lot. He just kind of... No, I don't think he smiles at all. Just the science lines and the dry delivery is the atomic weight of Cobalt 58.9. And so the name is very near and dear to him. Egon mm -hmm. comes from Egon Donsbeck, who was a classmate, and then Spengler came from the German historian and philosopher Oswald Spengler. Now, the, my favorite piece of information I found in this, I had never seen this trivia before. It is amazing, if you'll indulge me. Mm. 
So my favorite line in the film is when Peter's talking about that he stopped him from drilling a hole in his head. And he says, that would have worked if you hadn't stopped me. A, that's improv. B, that's real life science. A scientist named John Lilly was researching dolphin communication and proposed literally drilling a hole in his head until he was stopped. Wow. Layers to that lightning in a bottle. That is why this movie is just perfect. That is just perfect summary of why it's just so good. Well, it's one of those ones too, even though you see it as a kid, you can watch it as an adult and just pick up on things you didn't uh, understand before. You didn't understand the jokes or like I said, there's so many little quips in here that I never even picked up as a kid. Um, and, And the other thing too, Compared to a lot of like comedies that came out, this is actually shot like a horror film. Like, look at the lighting on it. It's just, yeah. the, at least the first one's dimly lit and it's it, it's paced like a horror film. You know what I mean? Like the, when when Dana goes back to her apartment and the hands come out of the couch, you know, that's, oh, that's yeah. fucking scary shit. That is so scary. The hand with the, the center of the legs is the scariest thing in the world. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. Another I thing, know. I want to say the pacing, as you were just mentioning, and Dana, I, I love how that they check in on all of our side characters throughout the film. It's like in the montage, you're seeing Dana work out. And then at the end of the montage, you're seeing her restringing her cello. It's just like you're seeing little tidbits that are really building up the characters. It's so cool. It's just it makes it feel so real with the universe it creates. And it, it shows an experience you see so often people who talk about like an out of body experience or an incorporeal experience or an extraterrestrial experience. It's not omnipresent in your life. You're not always a guy who thinks he was pro. There are times where you're just restringing your cello. So I really love that she starts off somewhat frantic and then lulls into a sense of ennui and normalcy and then hits it hard and becomes a dog. Shall we talk about Sigourney Weaver? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do it. I love her. We talked about how she was uh, auditioning as a dog. Love it. Very bold choice for a woman coming off of Alien, one of the most successful movies of all time. She was originally going to be a model, but she recommended being a musician. I think that is the most badass, awesome, feminist thing ever. I love her in every capacity forever. So much. Mm-hmm. I know. And it's interesting. I think I told you guys this before because I was reading. She has a, an article right now in InStyle, I think from last month. She's 71 now. Gorgeous. Still. She looks amazing. Uh, but she was, I think she went to Yale acting school. I can't remember. She went to a really prestigious acting school and they told her that she wasn't good enough, that she sucked and she needs to stop. And it wasn't until she got on board with Alien that she was finally able, like, she just never, she didn't listen to that person, basically. So she would never, if she had listened, like, we would never have her. Like, how sad would that be? So that was so interesting. Yeah, man. Now they can suck her dog dick. (laughs) I know. And she's like a household name. Like, everybody loves her. Uh, She's great in everything. I mean, down to working girl. um, Just like, just the way she speaks and how she carries herself and just, I don't know, even now at 71 years old. And she like talks about how she puts in all of these notes, like she controls her characters and everything that she's in. And so like she had a lot to say or to do with with this one. I was reading all the trivia today. So I honestly like would we have Ghostbusters as it is like I can see Michael Keaton being Bill Murray's character and I could see Eddie Murphy you know, doing Ernie Hudson's character. But I don't know if I could picture anyone else being Dana. Oh. 
No, she was the strong woman to counterbalance uh, Bill Murray's Peter Venkman womanizing, just like she was the unattainable. She was the one that he had to work for to better himself because she was just a strong female and just getting it done, man. And it wasn't just her looks. It wasn't that she was aesthetically out of his league. She's a woman of culture and principle and poise. Yeah, She's not him. Orchestral Uh, musician. May I introduce a concept? This might sound tangential, and maybe it's because there's a scene with a refrigerator and her, but I'd like to kind of introduce something that's a little bit comic book related. Mm. So back in the 90s, uh, Kyle Rayner, who was one of the Green Lanterns, his girlfriend at the time was murdered and her body was in a refrigerator. So you Mm. hear the term in comic books, it's called women in refrigerators or fridging. And Gail Simone, who is a wonderful comic book writer, created a list of all the times that female characters are brought into comics just to be victimized. Karen Page, Daredevil's girlfriend, she gets beaten, injected with HIV, murdered. Gwen Stacy dies. All of these women come in to be a victim. And oh, yeah. I love that Dana, even in her most vulnerable positions, is not just a victim. She's not made to suffer needlessly. And that's something that I really have a hard time with a lot of horror. And I think that this is just so distinguished. She demands such respect. She rewrote. I mean, she's a huge reason why Aliens 3 was not Aliens again, because she was like, "Uh, I don't want guns. If I'm going to do this, I don't want guns. And she has her own principles. I mean, an amazing, enigmatic woman when you think of it. Just when she becomes Zool and Venkman gets to the Ooh. apartment and she don't oh, hurt me. <laughs> Seriously. And she that's the thing. She brings him in. She throws him on the bed and just flips him around. And he is her ragdoll. And like the womanizer he is, now's his shot. Like even he, he was like, not going to do it. I'm not, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to do it. He's, nope. he's the one being me too there. And it's kind of interesting, yeah. that role reversal, right? It really yeah. is. And it's powerful. I think that is very much why I've always loved just a strong female character, especially in horror. Now, uh, I have a, a novelty gag I'd like to do. So for the audio version of this show, we're going to speed up the following enormously, perhaps three to four times in length. But Ooh. I am going to read you dramatically Sigourney Weaver's handwritten poem that she read at the rap party in Los Angeles. Are you ready? (laughs) Yes, please. It's so quaint, especially when you juxtapose it with Adrian's comment about her notes and her investing in these characters, because this comes from the most earnest and sincere place, but it is the dumbest fucking thing, and I still love it. I am a little Ghostbuster. Sigourney is my name. This picture costs a lot of bread. Let's hope it makes the same. I played the damsel in distress. We know what that entails. An icebox put the moves on me. I woke up in dogs and trails. I was attacked by leaping eggs, molested by a chair, levitated more than once. Laz, Bob, Joe, it's okay. I, I, I don't know where the rhyme went there. Blown away and barbecued, devoured by a terror pooch. I crawled out of his haunches, and Pete Bankman gave me a smooch. I think in every dangerous scene, I had some part to play. My thanks and affection to special effects, you really blow me away. I've always felt so much support and humor in this crew to each and every single one. I'd like to say thank you. And you'd think that's the end, but then there's a couple more stanzas, so please bear with me. (laughs) Our cast is an ensemble. Ernie's nice and Anne's a honey. Ivan is always quick to laugh. Bill Atherton and I are never funny. That's the funniest part of this. I have a crush on Harold, and Danny is a dream. Moranis is my demon, and Ivan makes me scream. He has me growl and pant and snarl and roll my eyes and more. Perhaps this is the break I need to move into hardcore. 
<laughs> I love that mental image, mind you. I've spent so much time laughing in all my scenes with Bill. He teased me off the method. Now my perforations nil. That's amazing because everybody who works opposite Murray gets so pissed that he never stays on script. Finally, I think I'm very lucky. Movies like this are far and few. I've had a real wonderful time. I'll miss it all. And you. So she realized she was part of something special before it even became a $300 million success. Aww. Why was like half of that ghost written by Lloyd Kaufman? <laughs> yeah, there's some uh, some undertones there. I'm very interested. <laughs> Hardcore <laughs> undertones. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I think this is still <laughs> Columbia's uh, biggest uh, moneymaker right now. I know I know Columbia sold the rights to Sony, but I think this is still, uh, you know, their, their biggest cash cow. And Sony mm-hmm. frustratingly holds the rights for everything, so a shared universe is not likely. All I want is Ghostbusters meets uh, Johnny Five. I think that would make a good uh, short comeback. circuit. Help me, yeah. Rhonda. Help, help me. Okay. Shall we get into <laughs> Rick Moranis and the atrocity that would have been? Oh yes. Uh, Rick Moranis is the best. Like Lewis is literally my favorite character in this whole movie, though. I have such a new appreciation just seeing him when Walter Peck shows up and he's possessed as Vince Clortho and he's just right behind <laughs> Ramus. It, my God, he, he has this charm to him. Just his motions are just so incredible and just oh, what everyone brings to their roles is something that could never be replaced. I love it because a lot of the awkwardness in this thing, there's even a scene where like Ramus is like looking at the floor to find his blocking because of the tape and looks up and you can see that exact kind of mannerism being impersonated by a demon who's possessing a dweeby accountant and it plays on all (laughs) levels he doesn't just become a guy he's a guy possessed so he still has some of those weird idiosyncrasies i mean top tier performance i'm a dude possessed by a dude playing another dude like the scene where he's going through and talking about the salmon all improv a scene that would have otherwise been pithy and nothing up until obviously a dog explodes out of the room. You think it's too warm for the brie? <laughs> Adrian, you were saying, I'm sorry. Oh no, it was just one continuous shot. And I never really noticed that until I was like, you know, and like Doug was saying, the older you get, the more you notice these little things. But it was one whole shot and it's like all improvised. Like it's the best. Like he's talking about everybody's like, you know, how much they own their house and all this stuff. And I just love it so much. He's it's absolutely masterful, especially when you think of what it could have been if John Candy, oh, who the role was written for, had actually played it as a loud and stern German man. Yeah, he wanted like two dogs with yeah, him. Yeah, he wanted two like Rottweilers with him or something. Was it Rottweilers or was it Poodles? It was Schnauzers. I think. Schnauzers, yeah. It was supposed to be this like this Nazi type, which I don't think would have worked because I think Lewis is like your every neighbor. Like you, everyone always has yes. a friend or a neighbor sweet. like Lewis. The yeah. fucking clinger yeah. who's like, hey, can I keep talking? And you're like, no. I have groceries. That gatekeeper and keymaster relationship would have been weird as fuck. Yeah, I don't like that. Right? Uh, yeah. You don't think about that until now. I like that she can dominate him. That's fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And he's a tiny little guy. Yeah. <laughs> he's just all disheveled and everything we're getting made out with. And he's just like, this is great. Uh, that's why as a kid, like, I always compared Little Shop of Horrors to Ghostbusters and Ghostbusters 2 because I just thought Lewis was... Uh, you know, his, his same character in Little Shop of Wars, as weird as that is. There's something a little Jabba the Hutt if a guy John Candy's size is pining over a woman and not getting her right. It's just a little bit yeah. greasy. But yeah. this is it's so cute. It's like you're rooting for him. Like, it's yeah. Rudy. Like, you could never please that woman. 
here, I'll show you how. But my point is clearly like there's a scene as a deleted scene where he asks Dana like, hey, when we were dogs, did we have sex? And she like adamantly <laughs> says no. <laughs> no, that's a step too far. No. Yeah. The amount that we get here is basically perfect. There's there are like what 12 deleted scenes from this just little snippets here and there. But yeah, what they trimmed off, I'm so glad they did because it changes the mood. We kind of cut ahead. Moranis does end up becoming an honorary Ghostbuster in later years. But for this film, I think the one thing that disappoints me in my research is Ernie Hudson's Winston Zedmore. Yeah. Uh, mm. Adam, I think you'll appreciate this. He gets cyborged in this movie. And what I mean by that is if you look at Justice League 2017 compared to the Snyder Cut, you have a guy who was integral who becomes nothing. Mm -hmm. And Zed Moore was introduced on page eight of the original draft when it was built, when it was uh, Eddie, Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Because like, I understand cutting back the role. I don't like the fact that he gets subjugated. And what pleases me greatly is that Dan Aykroyd has publicly said, that's the thing that he that like haunts him the most about this movie is that in cutting back the role for time and for budget and for star power, he also cut back the significance of that character. Does it frustrate any of you? Yeah, that was like the biggest thing I didn't realize when I was doing research for this movie. I had no idea that Eddie Murphy was ever up for the role. And then like to basically say that Ernie Hudson got the shaft, which he, he gets the shaft uh, in Leviathan too, right at the end. Like, the pops up and it fucking kills him, like, out of nowhere. And then the two white people live. Like, why? Like, justice for Ernie. I'm sorry. Hashtag justice for Ernie. He's an amazing actor. And, like, he mm -hmm. really, really brings the everyman role to this. Like, just getting hired for a job because he's applying for it. He's like, there's a paycheck in it. I'm here for it. Yeah. He's, he's like a dude that I could see just meeting on a job site, smoking a cigarette with, and just fucking talking life. And he just does such... I feel he he does an impactful job with the little bit that he's he's given. I mean, it is drastically reduced, but he's, he just brings so much heart to the character. He becomes the abbot because he's so normal by comparison that you get to kind of experience like the fish out of water without yeah. somebody who's needlessly like pointing or jeering. Because the Ghostbusters certainly get that with characters like uh, William Atherton's character who are attacking them. But here you have somebody who's still part of them and still going like, yes, this is weird. Doug, what do you think? Well, I think Winston is definitely the audience. Like that's how uh, that's how I've kind of seen him, you know, us. It's like, okay, well, you know, if there's a steady paycheck involved, I'll believe anything you say. But uh, you, there was a lot more to Winston too. He was supposed to be like, uh, like he was, he was in the army before and then he was a construction yep. worker mm -hmm. and they just cut so much out. And, uh, you know, shame, shame on the, even the games too, because I remember the Sega Genesis game, uh, Winston wasn't in. You didn't nope, get that until like the, uh, yeah, the, the newer ones uh, that came out. But yeah, it's, it's a sh I don't know why he gets, sh I mean, honestly, I, I, I know why he gets the shaft, but uh, it's just, it, it's unfair. And I, I think, you know, Winston should be, I'm glad he's all over the cover of part two now. From the beginning of part two, I mean, mm -hmm. you've got him and, and Ray, and I think that shows like he's in it because the paycheck is clearly gone. But he's mm -hmm. still there and that like loyalty and earnesty and he's very, very charming. Like the whole movie, I really, really like Winston. I, you know, I, I really want to see the scene where Stay Puft is his idea because in like every draft except the one they actually shot, it was his idea that Stay Puft comes to be. And Ray and has so many good moments. Making sense. You could see yeah. it making sense. It's just like fuck on the outsider. I didn't know how to clear my brain. I exactly. Just, you know, and it would have been like fuck, man. You can't blame him. What also like here's this thing that this uh, uninitiated guy. He mm -hmm. doesn't know 
the, the ghouls and goblins and uh, specters and demons that these other guys know. If Ray, in my summation, if Ray actually had been thinking, I'm sure it would have been way worse because he's seen the darkness. Yeah, and fucking Yog Sothoth shows up. Exactly. <laughs> you know, right? Cthulhu mm -hmm. lies waiting in red and dreaming versus this. It's like, I, I tried think to think of the most innocent thing ever. Yeah, because think about it. Like, uh, I, I know it, it's perfection the way it is, but just think if Ernie Hudson was in the scenes where they're at the Sedgwick Hotel and he sees Slimer for like the ghost for the first time. Like, just imagine like the reactions he could have got out of that. That would have been hilarious. I do like the reactions that the informed get, but I do agree with you. I think that tr having both there is great because you have the everyman who is scared and that represents the audience. But then here is a guy who's seen some shit scared. It kind of goes like men in black, right? Will Smith is supposed to be scared and frantic because he doesn't know any better. But when you see Tommy Lee Jones start to get jilted at all, you know shit's real. And I think that mm -hmm. could have really been evoked. Obviously, this predates Men in Black by over 20 years, but I think that kind of ideology continues. Uh, shall we move on to Annie Potts, uh, Janine Melnitz, Hubba Hubba Part Du? Dua? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I... It's no question my proclivities are what they are with Sigourney Weaver and Annie Potts in this movie. <laughs> she's so good. She's so like, how is she so measurable by just a voice? The attitude, man. It's just that swagger that she packs <laughs> with that attitude. Yeah. And, and the funny thing is, too, it's like they they wrote her so well um, because everyone in life, if you worked a regular job or just you know went through life, <laughs> everyone knows an Annie Potts type character. Yeah. yeah. Do you believe in telepathy and all this? <laughs> you know, what I mean, and they'll give you a face. It's like, oh, like, like when Bankman tells uh, 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 Sigourney Weaver when she comes in, she's like, oh, yeah, we've been so busy. And he just, she's going to give you that look like, are you fucking kidding? <laughs> Stuff stared at me. You got those bug eyes. <laughs> Janine, sorry about the bug eyes thing. What is that? File something. Yeah, we're paying for this. We're paying for this type something. <laughs> but you got to love because she's also she represents like the mundanity of it all. Like you, you hear I've listened to some interviews with some porn stars who are like, yeah, just getting come on is just work. It just becomes the, the normal. It becomes the baseline. So it's she's a script. She's living in this it, like world with phantasms. And she's like, yeah, until five o'clock when I clock out. <laughs> yeah, she. I like I like the little uh, just there's so much little details that you don't pick up on unless you're paying attention. Like uh, when, when she, she changes her shoes every time she comes in. So I got like, like that Mr. Rogers vibe. Yeah. Uh, so it's like, okay, I know there's not going to be any ghost calls, so I'm just going to change it to my nice shoes. And once my shift's over, I'm going to change it to my sneakers. <laughs> you know, what I mean? It's little touches, little details like that that just make this movie so brilliant. Just little things going on in the background like that. And just ugh, no one else could have played her role. No one else could have played it like this at all. It's not so hard because you really want her to amp it up, but it goes to less is more because she steals it <laughs> when she's in there. I could watch a whole show with just her. Like, you know what would be the best live action Ghostbusters show would be just the firehouse, not anywhere where the stuff's happening. And it's just like her processing it and the guys getting back and like, man, that was some crazy shit. Like there was talks about doing a damage control show for Marvel, which would be like basically the same thing. If you know, damage control is the company <laughs> yeah. that cleans up after the superheroes. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the most, because uh, that's what, how is it more relative than that? A, the budget's cheap, but then B, like I never saw a ghost, I, but I have worked a shitty job. Let's set the <laughs> office in the firehouse. Am I right, gang? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be entertained by watching her uh, like the scene before Walter Peck comes in. She's just down there making coffee. She's like, you can't come in here. And she's yelling, but she's still poor. She's like, I'm not going to finish till this coffee pot is filled. And 
perfect segue into Walter Peck, played by William Atherton, who just the best prick in any movie ever, haunted by this movie because people will yell, hey, Dickless, from anywhere that he's within earshot. He I is, literally had in my notes, William Atherton is never not a prick. He's <laughs> so good. The fact that he didn't want to come back for the second one is completely understandable because it's like the amount of vitriol I'm sure he's received and he's perceived as being an awful person. Imagine how many people have spit in his food because of a fictional character he played in this movie. Dude, he'd get food. Right. <laughs> well, funny thing is, I, I put some perspective into this after watching it again. Walter Peck may be a dick, but but he is right. The yeah. EPA would have easily closed that down. Just imagine Tesla like going into like uh, proton nuclear reactors in, in their base. Oh, yeah. and, you know, they're like, we got to close you down. You can't, this is unauthorized. Uh, you know, you have, you have, Things that can explode in your basement of Tesla. You know, he's right throughout the film. As scary as it is, Walter Peck is the right one. <laughs> Completely right until he shuts down the fucking grid. That's that's. But that's here's it. the thing: <laughs> at that point, it's still voodoo to him. He doesn't believe in it, so you can't blame him based on the objective evidence. That's why I'm an atheist. But what I like about him: go back and reread Civil War, Marvel's Civil War. Mm -hmm. For those of you who've only seen Captain America's Civil War, if you go back, there's. Stanford can people die blah blah they want to create the superhero registration acts and Tony Stark is advocating it because he's like yeah I was an alcoholic in a multi-million dollar death machine and nobody regulated me this is wrong it's a he is entirely correct from the perspective of an innocent person I have no business being subjected to the tortures of the Hulk I have no right having my uh, privacy invaded by a Professor Xavier or Kitty Pride, but he's a fucking prick about it and so it's so easy to root for Captain America, even though I don't have superpowers, even though I'm not a superhero, I'm still like, fuck him. That this energy where you're like, you are so right. Protect me. But fuck you. It's so good. It's all the fucking delivery, man. It's like if he just came in there and be like, hey, I'm not trying to bust your balls. We just got to check this shit out. Sorry, Dude, man, I got a quota. would have been great. Goes in. There would have been no marshmallow, man. <laughs> but I mean, dude, would have been business as usual. I know. You know. Yeah, for a guy coming in, you know, like coming at what is the magic word, Dr. Beckman? <laughs> like, say, like, who the fuck? Like, yeah, I'd treat you like an asshole, too. We move on to Ivan Reitman, who did the voice of Zool and Onionhead and the ghost of John Belushi and eventually Slimer, which are all one character. That's fun. Uh, mm -hmm. I want to mention yeah. two other ones because of roles they were in otherwise that I thought was funny. Alice Drummond, who plays a librarian. You might mm -hmm. remember her as Mrs. Finkel from yep. Ace Ventura Pet Detective. And then Jennifer Runyon, who plays the student <laughs> in the beginning. A, a passable blonde. I usually don't, but yeah, maybe I would indulge in that one. She played Nurse Zarkov in Bloodsucker Jones, a movie which I own but have never watched. I bought it at Midsummer Scream when <laughs> conventions were still a thing. Met everybody. <laughs> I've never been able to actually open the case and put it in a disk drive. I am that lazy. It's not streaming and I can't press one button. Sorry. I believe it. All right. So, Adam, this is your this is your dog and pony show at this point. I have done the analytics. Let's get into the passion, the zest, the zeal. Do you want to take us through the sleigh by play? Okay, so yeah, we start off right outside the New York Public Library. Uh, that is my first stop every time I go into the city. I leave Grand Central and I just go check out those lion statues. And we follow our 
librarian who is just going about her daily business and uh, goes on down to the stacks to put away books. By the way, the exterior shots and the upstairs are all in New York. That's all the New York Public Library. But when she goes downstairs, that's in L.A., apparently. Correct. But, uh, yeah, so she heads on down to put away books, and the card catalogs start spraying cards everywhere. She freaks out, takes flight, and, uh, yeah, rounds a corner, and we have a glowing light and a title card. I love that effect. It's, it's one of the most quaint effects, but when the cards shoot out, always thought that was so fun because it's so dynamic, and it's something so innocent happening, but it's still so eerie. It exactly and dude, just the yeah. opening of the film, I think, is the most effective use of a theremin ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, yeah, that instrument was invented to score this film. Take that, Hannibal Burris. Yeah. Well, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people that uh, feel this way too. But after watching the original Ghostbusters, you know, um, back in Ohio, they had like a bunch of basement uh, libraries and stuff. That's the creepiest place. Like after Ghostbusters, like even though it's a comedy. That opening scene when she's just walking through and it's like that that ominous music playing and then you see the books flying like it made me kind of like creeped out to go to library basements. So I'm sure there's still a lot of library basements that are still spooky to this day. But damn, yeah, that made me uh, terrified to go down to the basement of the library. Yeah, can confirm. And even like uh, it chapter one that came out, just that that library basement. Library basements are just. They smell. Well, they have a smell. There's no more car catalog anymore, so it's probably not that, you know. I like the mustiness of old books, but, you know, that's just me. Aid, what's your thought <laughs> on stinky old books? I love that, you know, okay, so that was the biggest thing of this movie. Like, the only thing I ever think of is because when I was a kid, I used to um, always do the card catalog at the library in elementary school. I was always, like, helping the librarian because I'm such a uh, dork, so. I could see it, uh, Tina. Yeah, I was like a little helper. It was so cute. Anyways, like I, the biggest thing I take away from that beginning scene is the fact like who is going to pick up this mess and organize <laughs> those cards back again? Like that is literally the only thing I can this think of. This is going to take so. forever. <laughs> I know. I'm like, what a mess. So, I mean, I, I get it. Like, I think it's, it's, it's good for the time and you can't have that anymore because like I said, there's no, well, I tried to say it earlier, but you didn't hear me. There's no more card catalog. So like, what do they have in the basement? Like, you know, probably the coffee room now. I don't know. Yeah. And I'm honestly, I love how unsettling it is. Like you ever put your headphones in backwards. So the right is in the left and the left is in the right. And then you, it takes a couple seconds before you realize like, that was, that just feels off. It doesn't yes. hurt. It doesn't, it doesn't burn, but it feels wrong. It's and not she, right. When it's following her, it feels weird. And it's so just the pacing is great. And also what's good is like we see her reaction. She's scared, but it's not like a blood curdling scream. So it's not so severe, but it's a very severe setup, which I think is great. That's what distinguishes this movie, because think about how over the top, how garish, how severe, how in your face and almost percussively like violent the effects are in 2016. It kind of anesthetizes you to it. Whereas this movie mm-hmm. does a really good job of setting up the expectation of getting you that base level. And then the effects are not the, the highlight of this movie, right? Well, you feel that scene on the back of your neck, no matter how many times you watch it. It's just so effective. Yeah, it's, it's a good counterbalance, too, because right after that, then you cut to Bankman. And then uh, then you see like the splooge all over the uh, all over the cards <laughs> and stuff. It's like the White House when Clinton was there. I'm like, man, he's hot. <laughs> 
I was going to say the squid and the whale, where there's a scene where a kid <laughs> smears his jizz on books. You can't unsee that. Oh, your mucus. <laughs> so, uh, going through it, I really love the fact that they're all failing. It reminds me, it has a charm about it, like Peter Parker. You know, they can't get it straight. They're right. They're doing their best. But your best isn't always good enough. Your best isn't monetizable. Your best isn't you know what is needed at all times. And so the fact that they're in all their earnesty doing everything they can, I really love that they keep failing over and over again. Because in this way, it's different than like I always compare to Rocky 2 where it just hurts. This mm. is fun to me. They're down on their luck heroes whose path just isn't presented to them right away. And it's fun seeing them find that path. But so it's just happens? their delivery of the lines too. Like when, like when they're down on their luck, you know, Bankman's just kind of like, well, you know what? It's a sign. <laughs> and then, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> another line too I didn't pick up before in the past uh, was uh, with Ray when he's just like, he's like, you've been in college your whole life. I've worked in the private sector and they expect results. <laughs> okay, just to clarify, uh, in today's era, uh, patent clerk makes about $66,000 a year on national average. It's not too shabby. Einstein should have just kept doing his patent clerk job. <laughs> you know, yeah. shit, get me one of them. So uh, after the title card, we, uh, we go to Columbia University, the uh, Paranormal Studies Department, where we do meet Bill Murray's Peter Venkman, where he is uh, traumatizing one student while trying to seduce another. Also, great plug for the production company of the movie, Columbia University. Oh. Exactly. Yeah. Good point. Um, but I, I just think this banter back and forth, it just Bill Murray's improving with the cards. Oh, it's so good. Just a couple wavy lines. He's not even paying attention at that point. What's great is I'm sure there are funnier lines, but I love the realism of his line. I think that's one of the things about Bill Murray is you could have probably a more eloquent or sophisticated or artistic joke or just an outright funnier joke. But he is affable. His presentation is good. It seems so earnest that it doesn't feel like acting. It feels like he actually is there doing the things. Like That's why I said he's my favorite actor in Hamlet 2000 because he seems the only guy who just knows what he's talking about because his delivery is such where it's not acting. It's just a guy. <laughs> the delivery of we're paying you, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> you can keep the five <laughs> bucks. I'm out of here. As if you don't merit any kind of respect. I mean, workers, right? Say. Hey. People who work at Amazon warehouses, why don't you give a Ghostbusters an extra we watch? Huh? I was just saying, not to get too uh, political to the snowflakes in the reviews. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, they would have given him a, a bottle to piss in if he was doing Amazon work. Ah. <laughs> What's sad is that that's more horrifying than anything in this movie, and it's real life, motherfuckers. Uh, what happens next, Adam? So uh, in we have uh, Dan Aykroyd's Ray Stance. He comes in and he lets uh, Bill Murray know that shit is uh, getting real over at the New York Public Library. So he tells him, come on, we got to go do this. And then they go over there and we get our first scene with Harold Ramis's Egon Spangler, where, uh, yeah, we get that brilliant drill a hole through your headline. It's just the chemistry of this movie. It just it, the chemistry, the flow and the pacing. It just it's perfect because this movie starts with a bang. It balances out, but it still keeps that speed. We meet the library manager that brings us over to the librarian who witnessed the event. 
and uh, they start giving her the, the 20 questions. Uh, have you, are you using drugs, alcohol, anything like that? Do you or your family ever think you were someone else? And um, just to, just to like stop you there for a second. Did you realize like when he asked her why she's menstruating? Like I had to look that up because I'm like, why is that relevant? And I guess basically, and he's like, back off, man, I'm a scientist. Like, she's an old lady. Of course, she's not menstruating. Like, why is he asking her this? Uh, but I guess in parapsychology, there are some, I'm just reading off my notes, uh, correlation between menstrual cycles and latent tel telekinetic power. So he wasn't sure if, like, she had something to do with it. Have you I'm seen like, Carrie? Oh, a little bit, huh? <laughs> yes. Carrie is based on that. Like, it, it, it's not just, like, <laughs> Stephen King's weirdness, literally her menstruation has to do with her telekinetic powers. It's crazy. And it's mm -hmm. just brilliant because it's Bill Murray. So, so he could be asking for either way, like either reason. He could just be being that dick or, you know, oh, wait, he actually does study sometimes. I think it's also a bit of both. I think that he's antagonizing her by asking mm -hmm. questions and basically he's getting stonewalled. So he starts to get hyperbole and basically skip to the end because there are times I'll do that in a deposition where I have a whole thing of questions I have to get through, but I'll just skip to, hey, has anybody ever diddled your cooter when you weren't aware of it? <laughs> yeah, I can see you vankmaning the shit out of a fucking depot. It catches attention real quick. And a lot of times, the other attorney's sleeping by that point, so they don't catch it and object. It's awesome. So you got to take more Bill Murray to your uh, to your courtroom hearings. That, that's got to be, uh, it'll be a real treat. They're like, yeah, we want that lawyer back again. He's funny. Well, and also, you're, he's not perverse. He doesn't push it. He's not like, are you bleeding, bleeding out your snooch or nothing? He's, he's <laughs> acting an objective scientific question that exactly. might just be uncouth. Medical term. You know, it catches people off guard, but it's still, it's still science. Just like a finger in your cooter when you were <laughs> Yeah, and another off thing goes guard. back to uh, what you were saying, uh, Adam, uh, about like how films are nowadays compared to this one. You get introduced to Egon in like just a few seconds, but you can pick up how his character is. He has the stethoscope on the table and you can tell he's so adamant to like, he's so into his job. <laughs> they just tap it and slam the table. <laughs> you get that dynamic. It's so good, dude. And it, just little things like that. Like when they're eating the, uh, the Chinese food later on uh, and he's just sitting there soldering the neutrona wand at the table. It's just like, okay, he's just a man obsessed. It's I love little touches like that because this movie makes apparent what they, what they have going on just flawlessly seamlessly. And you're just, you're never deterred. And one of the things that's great is so often in movies, you find characters who are exaggerated, but tolerated. And you're like, why? Like, objectively, that's weird. But what's great is Venkman, his presentation is such, it does two things. One, it kind of shows how long these guys have been working together in some capacity, because there's this fatigue that sets in where they're like, they look at him like, again, another quip, another remark. And then two, it shows how truly passionate they are by comparison to this guy who has this kind of like flippancy about him. It's a really great way to establish a character dynamic without saying, Bankman, I really wish you weren't such a jerk all the time. Oh, that's going to leave a mark. It, it, it's just that, and that's it. That's the chemistry. That's the lightning in the bottle that comes with this cast. It's lightning in the bottle? Yeah, that too. Oh, shocking. Like but, um, a finger in your cooter. Oh, my God. <laughs> that one oh caught me God. In too. Sorry, uh, Kate. If, for you, those of you who aren't paying for the Patreon video exclusive, you have to see Aid's reactions every time I mention a cooter in my own butthole. She's acting as if it's hers. I never said I was going to do anything to you and your orifices, lady. 
You're on a different side of the country. I'm the only one who has a cooter here, so I'm going to, like, take it personally. <laughs> like, I thought a cooter can also be a bunghole if it's a man cooter. I, that's that's established. Oh, that's science. Oh, my God. I don't know. I can't believe I just said that. Anyways. <laughs> Have you ever what seen a, next, Adam? this book called Grey's Anatomy? It's there. Well, man cooter. At, at Planet Fitness, where, like, when they're wiping their ass, they're like, oh, I just got to dry my back pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Oh my god. Uh, Doug is a sleeper agent for all things humor. He sits there quietly <laughs> and politely waiting and then he hits me in the stomach and it feels like I've like got the wind knocked out of me. Bless <laughs> your heart. It's like you just walk away sipping a juice box like nothing ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> so uh anyways, after the menstruation question, they they've had enough questioning and uh they head downstairs because Egon uses the PKE meter and uh, detects that it's moving. So they head on down to the stacks where they start tracing the aisles and they come upon a stack of books, symmetrical book stacking. And uh, Ray just, uh, it's got to be ghosts, like the mass disturbance of, uh, what was it, 1947. And Bill Murray just hits him with, yeah, no human could stack books like this. It's like, it's a stack of books. It's like, it could, we're in New York. It could be some punk kid fucking around. Ah. Who knows? But yeah, it's ghosts already. But then we get, listen, do you smell something? One of of my favorite lines in existence. So good. You see the synapses firing in his brain at that point, and it's it's just it's so good. And uh, so turn another corner and uh, find the ectoplasm, and uh, it's just that scene where Bill Murray's trying to collect it gets it stuck on everything. The cards start sticking to his hand, and he's kicking it off on the bookshelves and everything. It's just it's it's slapstick, but pulled back to just a dry extent. He doesn't need a pratfall or anything to do it. It's just, yeah, hand gestures. It, it's real. And that's why it's funny, because everyone's fucking been there. Like, not necessarily ectoplasm. I mean, speak for yourselves. But, yeah, I mean, just getting something stuck on you and just, it, it, it's real. Then uh, they catch up with each other, and uh, a bookshelf nearly crushes them. Bill Murray gets an improv line. Has that ever happened to you before? <laughs> uh, which, imagine this. This is the question. This is what I talk about when people, like, stressing out the fuck with like with Bill Murray on uh, like doing improv imagine that joke doesn't land some poor asshole has to put all of those books back on that shelf set, reset the scene and do it again that has to be annoying when it doesn't work but luckily this works very well it, it just it, and that's the thing again it wouldn't have worked if if Keaton was cast would we have had that would we have had that simple little head turn and just you know man i don't know it's interesting to think about. I'm also a big Michael Keaton fan. I, mean, I grew up on Beetlejuice and Batman, so I'm probably giving him a, a lot of extra credit and multiplicity even. I'll give him that. So, Oh, hell yeah, dude. He's coming back as the vulture, dude. Shit. He's much still... ado about nothing. He's also Shakespearean. Right. Take that, Bill Murray. There we go. Mm. Oh, and he's adorable. Oh, my gosh. So there's that michael keaton he's a sexy batman yeah oh he's a sexy batman i wouldn't characterize him as adorable that kind of offends my sensibility he's more like a sex magnetron yeah he's like i don't know like i'm like he you just like his brow game i do i do (laughs) he pulls off a turtleneck like no man i've ever seen in my life (laughs) you're fucking a right he he wears that like michael c hall wears a fucking henley (laughs) Well, I lost some respect for Keaton after that uh, RoboCop appearance for the remake. Ooh. Yeah. You know, here's uh, my thing. 
We don't talk about remakes here. That's not my Ghostbusters 2016 with my love of the originals. But I mean, luckily, it already had fallen off the rails, which is one of the things we'll probably get to in Ghostbusters 2. I'm glad there wasn't a Ghostbusters 3 because I have a stern feeling that Ghostbusters 3 would have been Robocop 3. You know, Ooh, there, there's yeah. a lot of analogies to the way that the first two work. And I think the fact that, you know, especially adult humor that ends up getting cartoons and stuff like that, and the second one being much more kid friendly and all of these things, I think that shows no. And then when you get to the end, luckily we have three. So I was a little desensitized to Robocop sucking on Robocock by that point. Not that Robocock mm. is a bad thing. You could totally suck Robocock. It's just the image of Peter Weller doing it kind of offends my sensibilities. No big deal. Dead or alive, you're coming with me. Oh, 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 oh. In me, in me, dad, daddy, daddy. And then the guy goes, it tastes like baby food. What happens next, Adam? <laughs> oh, so where were we? Okay, we... Uh, so we just round... so we can be clear, uh, in the order of events for this episode, we were talking about the ectoplasm. We established that canonically Robocop's jizz tastes like baby food, and then they find the ghost. Facts. Boom. Yes, we, we come upon Eleanor Twitty, the library ghost, Dr. Eleanor Twitty, that we uh, find out more backstory about in the game that uh, we'll be talking about later. The effect they used on her was really awesome because they kept her with that ethereal transparency, but they rotoscoped the book she was holding so that it, in that shot, it would keep the book looking solid while she still looked transparent holding it. And I mean, that effect still holds up against anything. I am still impressed by that effect. That's what's great about analog effects is that they hold up in a different way. When you polish it up, it looks great. You polish up yeah. Titanic, for Christ's sake. You see all those little fucking CG people. And you're like, God, this is a nightmare. The little fucking lines in the pixels. Yep. Ugh. Yeah, and, and even on 4K, too, like when the 4K disc of this, like the colors just really, it looks still really good. The only thing that really like bothered me from the 4K one is that you really see the matte drawings like later when you yeah. get onto the establishing mm -hmm. shots and stuff. That was true in the laser disc as well. Reitman was mm -hmm. actually very upset about the quality of it because I mean, the matte work is very impressive. It's just when it's shot that way, there's nothing you can do. So he was very critical of going as far back as laser discs to that effect. Mm -hmm. Tell them not to watch the 4K then. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Eleanor Twitty, they confront her. They have Bill Murray go talk to her. They uh, mentally draw straws, basically, and he's just fucked to do it. So, Which I love. I'm sorry. We're, yeah. we're never going to get through this fucking movie at this rate. I'm sorry. Here's the thing. The best part of this is imagine training your whole life for a fight and somebody bops you on the nose and you have no idea what to do. These guys have lived and studied and worked and toiled for the paranormal. And when finally confronted with it, they're like, nope. nope, <laughs> yeah. nope. You get Egon playing with like his pocket calculator and, and right. <laughs> well, it's just like, so people talk so much shit about Alien Covenant when the astrobiologist sees the alien. He's like, what? And forgets all of his stuff. Yeah. Your logic brain and your emotive brain are not the same thing. And so here no. it supersedes logic. It's super. And that's the thing. When you're a logician and your logic is superseded, it's a great way of evoking how bizarre and crazy these things are without him going. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's the other Ghostbusters, right? Yeah. And she's like, oh, I'm queefing with fear. Yeah. I mean, quaking. <sighs> That's a literal oh, quote from the movie, crack. by the way. Yeah, it started with a queef joke. Fuck that film. But anyway, I actually don't so... mind the fact that it starts with a queef joke. I just mind the fact that I don't get a queef joke in this. I think that is what was needed from this movie. Just, <laughs> no representation. If Gozer was like, eh, that would just be the movie. 
the problem with that 2016 was there's no sense of danger. Everything seemed to be taken as a joke. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like winking at the camera. It's like, no, that's not how Ghostbusters was. It was, and it's you're like, again, it's so desensitized because it's so in yeah. your face. You're like, nothing is a threat if everything is fine. And so, like, in yeah. this, I'm kind of scared of an old lady. Yeah. I mean, he, he walks out from behind this aisle, stammers out, Hi, I'm, I'm Peter. Where are you from originally? And it's just, it's just so awkward. And she just turns them and she gives them the shush. She gives him the shush hard. And he's like, I got nothing. I got nothing. Because, yeah, at that point, any training, once you're thrown into it, you just you don't know how to act. And then we get Ray's brilliant take at the scenario. And we get the one, two, three getter. And just that transformation. Just it's the perfect level of scary. I feel like I they did have a puppet they originally designed that went on to be used in the Fright Night movie because yeah. they made it and it was just too scary. And I'm I'm glad they did that. I'm glad it found a home there. But like even as a kid watching this, like when I saw that, I wasn't scared. But it just it made the moment. And you see them like pissing their pants, running out of this building, and it's like. Dan Aykroyd nearly trips down those stairs. It's so good. But anyways, then we uh, we carry on to them uh, collecting themselves out on the sidewalk and uh, realizing what's just happened. And uh, they see they they've they've got to do something about this. So they head uh, they head back to uh, oh back to the dynamic though before we forget about just the uh, the candy bar that he hands Harold Ramis. It's just, it's real friendship. It's really just fucking with your friends. And it's, that's why this, this movie just has such a, a home feeling because of that, I think. Well, and also the, the unsaid, he doesn't need to be told, give me a candy bar. He knows to do it because he knows his friend. And I think that's really cool. Uh, you don't see that a lot in movies because it's like reaffirming. Like, look at so many movies where it's like, oh man, I'm so glad we've been best friends since we were five years old. You yeah. don't no best friend since five years old says I'm glad we've been best friends since five years old. No, it's no, weird. It's it it's the it's the candy bar tease, and and that's that's why you're on board with this movie. It's why you care about these characters because the heart presents itself without saying a thing immediately in this film. But uh, yeah, so then we get Sorry. our heroes. Oh. Uh, just really quick, you had mentioned the fact that the puppet or the librarian ends up in Fright Night. Mm. I've always wanted to ask somebody who's also similarly afflicted with the love of this movie. Did you ever mm. think that perhaps the 1988 pumpkin head was also a ripoff of that design? Because when I saw the shot for the first time, before I knew it was in Fright Night, I thought that it was the, uh, you know, a prototype of the pumpkin head with the way that it looks. I could oh. see it with the bone structure. Yeah. Okay. You may continue. All right. So, uh, yeah, the boys rush back to uh, the university to plan the next step. And they are met by Dean Yeager, who uh, promptly says we're sick of your shit. You're treating science like a hustle. We don't get your work. We don't understand you. But the kids love us, they say. But it didn't cut it. And uh, they were booted from Columbia. And uh, they end up on the iconic stairway. I want to say something about New York in this movie. This New York feels so timeless because the angles they choose, I feel like. Like, this came out in 84, but then we watched Frankenhooker, and just the shots of, uh, like, downtown and uh, Times Square in that movie make it feel so much older than this, don't they? Or Am I wrong? It has that definitely pulp feel, the kind of, like, grindhouse kind of 
ickiness where this has a pristine kind of look to it. And I think that also has to go with like the coloration because especially a lot of this is shot like the establishing calming the the breathing shots are all during the day and then the night shots show a direness. So I think that kind of correlates well because in Frankenhooker, the predominance is the nighttime and it has this lurid kind of dinginess to it while also being hyper colored, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Frankenhooker, you're going to all those seedy aisles and the seedy hotels and just where all the graffiti is. This one's more like a, a, a Starbucks version of New York. You know what I mean? You get the university, you get the library. Uh, besides the firehouse location, which I don't even think looks like that bad of an area when he's like, oh, it looks like a demilitarized zone. I'm like, <laughs> literally. And it's like, dude, you're in Manhattan. You know, how bad can it be? And it's crazy because if you look at the cinematographer, Laszlo Kovacs, hmm. he had also done movies like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and Easy Rider. And you see those and you're like, oh, I could totally see you. Like, but then he also did stuff like Free Willy 2. So I'm not exactly sure if it was just kind of luck that he put the camera there or if it was deliberate, but I digress. Back to the whole just uh, them being on the steps of Columbia. I thought it's just a really memorable use of location, I feel. I think they do a lot of that as well, just like in the montage when they're running past Rockefeller Center, the Golden Statue, stuff like that. It's It, it uses New York very effectively in a way uh, a lot of movies, I don't want to say misuse it, but don't succeed as well. Look at Elf, for example. And I know it sounds like a tenuous relationship, but very similar energy when it's like, uh, just some guy running around without a permit. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say uh, that or like Home Alone 2. We keep going back to Home Alone. Mm. But mm. It, it, I mean, the way it treated New York was similar. But yeah, Elf, I would definitely say is close. Every time right. I've been to New York, every single person is aware it's way too dangerous a place for a kid who looks like Macaulay Culkin. That kid would be sex trafficked really quick. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's why I don't go anymore. <laughs> it's completely fake. So anyway, what happens next? They get uh, they get the industrious idea to be capitalists and go out and venture forth and try and make their billions. Yeah, they put out uh, another mortgage on Ray's childhood home, and they look a for third some... mortgage, right? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, I forgot what the interest rate was, but the look on his face nineteen percent, and then Egon's like, he's like, oh, you know, the interest rate alone for a year is ninety five thousand. <laughs> His fucking heart dropped to his ass and you just saw it happen. On What's his so face. funny is Venkman, he's playing with house money. He has no investment. And what the, let me just tell you, when we get to Ghostbusters, the game, I fucking love when he talks on the commercial, they the slight changes of, he says that they're soon to be available to franchise yeah. the, the Ghostbusters, which just shows like he is just a huckster. This is just money. And meanwhile, you have poor Ray who is giving his inheritance for this thing. Yep, Venkman is clearly the reason they're not still at Columbia. But, you know, I mean, that's also a backhanded catalyst for greatness where they they achieved. I mean, so they put up the third mortgage. They meet their real estate agent and we we find the firehouse that is called Firehouse Hook and Ladder Company number eight in New York City. It is still operational at 14th North Moore Street at the intersection of Varick and Tribeca. It is a fully functioning firehouse. But the interior was shot in an abandoned fire station in Los Angeles. Am I saying that correct? California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and fun fact, that interior was also shared in a couple movies. You may uh, recognize it in uh, John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. It was Egg Shen's Garage. And also in The Mask, where Stanley Ipkiss receives the loner. And then, uh, yeah, he goes and sodomizes two mechanics with full-length exhaust mufflers. It's uh, pretty tight. Oh, my God. It's a kid's movie. 
Yeah. I know. <laughs> I never realized what he did until I got older. That's so crazy. Oh, yeah. They're in the I anus. Know, I, didn't, I didn't get that. Anyway. No. <laughs> no, but um, this, uh, just the architecture of this building, the exterior, it, it's just, it, it's beautiful. It's, I remember just getting the play set as a child. It's just so iconic. And I mean, uh, what was it? Back a few years ago, the Spider-Man PS4 came out and you can go around New York and you can go to the firehouse and there is a giant ghost tagged on the back of the building. It's just like, oh, thank you, Sony. Exactly. They own Spider-Man, they own Ghost, but the one shared universe we could get. Yeah, God, give me that. So they get there. Egon very much wonders if this place is even going to meet their power needs. They, like Doug said, they compare it to a demilitarized zone. <laughs> and uh, it's a they fire aren't hazard. too sure about it. Yeah, it's a complete fire hazard. It's a fire hazard firehouse. But then know? one of the great things comes out of this, which is Ray with his childlike wonder. Exactly. I love it. You know, and that's one of the ingredients that makes them work as a team. It's like Vankman is the devil may care attitude. Stance is the heart and that Egon is the brains behind it. And then Winston is our window into it. But yeah, Ray's reaction. Does this poll still work? Like, dude, it's it's, it's standing. It's yeah, dude, just 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 do it. Oh, yeah. The real estate agent just sees Ray and she's like, huh, huh. But so fish in a barrel. Yeah, they move on in, and um, yeah, we meet Annie Potts. Oh, sorry, get... if I may. Oh, wait. This is a great point. Uh, I, again, another detour, but it's a minor victory for Ray. We never hmm. feel too sad for Ray. We never feel like we're wallowing. It's not like Rocky II because he he's put a dire amount of money. He is jobless, but he, with his enthusiasm, happy. exactly. So you don't mope for him, and it's so nice. He never, it never felt like he was swindled. He got what he wanted. He said, hey, I want this firehouse. And they gave him the firehouse. Well, he it's makes like, the decision. Will, yeah. take it. Because it's yeah. his money. So he's affirming himself. He is not a victim in this scene. And it's awesome. And I don't even know if it was that deliberate, but it's that deliberate to me. It is. And it's just, it's just another one of those touches. This movie's got just such layers to it. Yeah, and then, it, well, he also makes a mistake, too, later on, because he buys the Ecto-1. He's like, oh, it just needs new brake pads, new mufflers, new engine, new this. And how much was it? 4800 <laughs> Bill Murray's like, Yeah, Bill Murray's just like, do? Oh, what the fuck? Like, he he gives those bug eyes. Like, what the fuck is this? Yep. But fun fact, you go you go ahead today looking for uh, people doing recreations or just restorations. That was a 59 Miller or Cadillac Miller Meteor. It was uh, an ambulance, not a hearse. A lot of people confuse oh, that. But um, I thought it was a hearse, yeah. Yeah, um, it, it looks very similar, but I think it's a kind of a conversion vehicle, the way the, the back is set up. But um, yeah, these are super hard to find for uh, fan collectors that are trying to recreate create Necto one or just Cadillac collectors and stuff like panels for this car. Now, just like the hood that has rust holes, the size of a coaster in it are still going for like 600 bucks. Like it's so uh, 4,800 bucks is kind of an investment. Random fact too. If you ever wanted to see the Ecto one, uh, you know, throw missiles and have machine guns attached to it uh, back on the PS three, you can play twisted metal online and you could create your own cars with templates Ooh. and stuff. And they had, they had the ambulance, the same car the Ecto-1 was, and people can put you put skins on there. So, yeah, I just remember that was the funnest thing. Like It's like you're playing Twisted Metal and you see the Ecto-1 just blowing up, throwing missiles, and oh, it was great. They, they, it's, unfortunately, it's not online anymore, so oh, well. Uh, 
when converted to 2021 money, we're talking $12,150.79. So it's uh, not that bad for a utility vehicle. But when you have all that work to do, yeah, bad. it's like you got to you got to factor in the DIY factor, your cost of parts, you know, that adds another bit in there. So I, I get the grief. I mean, they get the vehicle, man. It's real. They've got the car. Only one was made for production and it broke down on the last day. <sighs> I believe it. And it was the same one in the second film, I assume. I yep. bet you they just didn't do any work. That was probably just raw footage in the intro. They modified it. They added the extra LEDs and stuff. But yeah, so that's one of the funny things is like with this movie, you know, they didn't build multiple cars. One of the reasons, you know, like I had talked about like the night shots, they're very deliberate in what they did, but there's not a mm -hmm. whole lot of Ecto-1 when you consider how iconic it becomes. I mean, it's huge in the the, the cartoon and every video games, every video game from the originals. The you toy. Had, you had a top down where you're driving to the place, right? Because it was so iconic. And it's one of those kind of less is more things. Uh, but only one. Yeah. Car was a beast to fucking drive. We see the boys settling in, having their uh, last of the petty cash feast. Uh, wait, they had not met Dana Barrett yet. Well, just where she has the event. Yeah, because you missed the part in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. Because she sees the commercial. That was it. Well, and such a cute little scene where... You know, all it is is a hot plate. That's all that counter is. So, you know, she opens her refrigerator. She's putting the groceries away and she sees into the vortex of the unknown, the pyramid of Gozer and uh, the terror dog. And she leaves everything and the, the eggs start popping next to a bag of Stay Puffed marshmallows. And mm -hmm. when I watch this with my wife, she's like, well, if it's a hot plate, well, then why don't the marshmallows like, why doesn't the bag get melted? I was like, because it's not entirely heated, but yeah, it's, it's so heated simple. over here. So yeah, cute. just little effects, you know, and I think that's what they did with this movie was they took those $40 million ideas, they condensed them down with know-how and they made them work on this just much more minuscule budget. And it's, it's so memorable. It's like a little tap on table. Yeah. I just expect Dana to like flick me a fucking shrimp. <laughs> Hibachi. Yeah. Ha -ha. <laughs> yeah. And then when they open the fridge and they reveal Zul in there, the thing is, um, I, I recently watched, re watched uh, Heavy Metal as well, too. And Ivan Reitman uh, and Harold Ramis, they all, and, and uh, uh, Elmer Bernstein, the guy who scored Ghostbusters. Yeah, they are. Um, the, the fridge is basically just a scene ripped from Heavy Metal, if you yep. think about it. So, oh, yeah. hey, there you go. Heavy Metal rules so fucking hard. We have. Oh, I know. You got to watch it. Just watch it like with a perfect sound system. Adam, smoke, smoke a joint. Just just oh, get yeah. blazed to it, and then it's just like, my God, they do not make movies like this anymore. It's like watching Pink Floyd, The Wall, for the first time in like a theater. It's great. I'm gonna do that this week with the woofer. I think. Yeah, just yeah. Crank do that it. shit. Yeah, close all the blinds. Just get real nasty with it. Mm -hmm. So, and we established that they're trying. You know, they're putting out the ads and everything. They're they're desperate to try and get some business because they know that they're right. They know that there is spooks and specters out there. And so she sees the, and it's the great thing is it's not like she writes down the number she commit. It's not a huge part of her life. It's just what commercials are. It puts it in your consciousness. You know about it when you need it, and that's what it is. And it brings up like the whole part where Vankman, uh, when they're setting up the place, he says, "You don't think they're gonna drive down and not see the sign?" And then she ends up walking in. So I mean. <laughs> It's it's visible enough. It, it's good even before they had the whole no ghost logo. But yeah, she comes in. She explains her spiel somewhat to Janine and we get Bill Murray vaulting over that little uh, half doorway into his quote unquote office. Just 
I'm Peter Venkman. Can I help you? Now we know where Adam learned sexy voice. Yeah, dude. I was, <laughs> I was molding it. Molded by it. <laughs> Stop staring at me, Janine. You've got those bug eyes. <laughs> 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 but anyways, so yeah, oh um, Bill Murray's a fucking dog with a bone, and he's like, okay, we're going to check this shit out. He goes over to her apartment after uh, getting interviewed with Ray and Egon. Basically, he, he tries to play the hero. They get over to her apartment, he's like, let me go first. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. If anything's going to happen, I want it to happen to me first. <laughs> then he, he, he tries to put on the dog and pony show. He opens up the piano and touch, it tinkles those keys. They hate this. Like to torture him. Like just putting on the full, like she calls him a game show host. And she's just like not having it. She's like, dude, are you going to fix my shit or what? So she gets him to go in. They go and uh, look at the kitchen. He comments on the eggs. He makes the, the fridge a joke because it's not there. And it's like, dude, you're supposed to believe this. You're in the business. And she has to sell herself to him when they're trying to sell themselves to, hey, we're needed. And uh, it's an interesting dynamic where he's like, okay, I may have an in with this. She wants me to believe her. So what if I believe her? Then I'll be in. It's like, I'll solve this problem for her. And then I'm set. And it just, it sets him on this quest. And... You know, it's not for the noblest reasons at first, it seems, but, you know, it gets them there. So anyways, back at the firehouse, Chinese feast, last of the petty cash. They get their first phone call, their first uh, ghost incident, which we were actually supposed to see a deleted scene for of where Slimer was introduced. There was a couple on their honeymoon at the Sedgwick Hotel. The wife is awake. Uh, she sees the, a nightstand clock shatter. And then the wife gets like super douchey. He's like, oh, how, how, why'd you break my clock? Oh, I'm going to go sulk off to the bathroom. And I, apparently Slimer's in there. And that's where we get the uh, the call to Janine where, oh, oh, yes, they'll, they'll be so discreet. And she's just trying to contain herself that they actually have business coming in. And just that we've got one fucking is you feel it. You fucking feel it. And everyone's so excited. Cleaning up the town kicks in. They, the doors open up and you see this car just fully restored to its glory. And it's just breathtaking. It's just, it's an iconic scene in film. I don't care who you are. That movement's fucking cool. It's more dramatic than a takeoff in Top Gun. It's like, this <laughs> feels like boots to the streets. Let's do it. We're, yeah, and I we're just find it so, it. So, so funny when they say, oh, we'll be so discreet. And Bankman just comes in. Everyone's seen a ghost. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. With their giant costumes, they're clear like, you know, and the costumes are great too. The idea that they just basically wear an exterminator costume and, and what are the, you supposed to be some sort of a cosmonaut? Well, also just imagine like the, the Proton Pack is so much more effective in this scene specifically that it works for the whole rest of the movie, even if it's just a gag for this one part. Like the wand is cool or whatever, but there's you could kind of miss a wand. But you can't mm -hmm. miss that giant proton pack. I mean, that thing looks like a yeah. hiking backpack. Exactly. And I'm like I said, like that's that's part of what it's built from. It's just they built this thing, and it's just this ominous, iconic tool. Back to the whole fact of the the Ecto One being such a beast to drive. That scene where they come screeching out of the firehouse is completely sped up. There's like no other cars on the street because they had to speed it up because they had to just slowly maneuver that car out of the firehouse as not to just totally wreck the thing. And as you, you could definitely see it in the suspension of the vehicle because it is rattling. Oh, yeah. But I mean, 
and that's like probably the only time they do something like speed up a shot and it works and it's not completely animated but it's got that little bit of little bit of an effect little benny hill to it yeah it, very much so that's exactly it and uh yeah like they like we said they pull up to the hotel they uh, they make themselves really known they go to town they uh they they'd head to the elevator with the hauntings on the 12th floor which has got to be a nod to like close to the 13th you know well because there's the a lot of places don't even have a 13th yeah Exactly. It just goes right to the 14th, like be it uh, 1408, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, they went with the 12th floor. I thought it was playful. And uh, they get up to the elevator and they they meet that gentleman waiting for the elevator as well. Ask them, what are you supposed to be? Some sort of a cosmonaut? I'll take the next. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they tell him, well, we're exterminators. And that's 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 what they are. In essence, that's all they are. They got called to take care of a bug problem. And this is just a supernatural bug. And it's that's part of the charm, I think. If you if you take a step back and just look at it that way, it's like I feel like I've shown up to job sites that cocky before, just like with a cigarette in hand. It's like, OK, what do we got to do? And just kind of walked into the actual problem and saw it was something uh, to take a little bit more serious. But uh, yeah, so they head on up to the 12th floor. We have that brilliant scene in the elevator where they just discuss the absurdity that they're basically carrying a nuclear accelerator on their back thing gets turned on and sounds like it could blow at any second murray and ramus hug the wall it just just perfect comedic execution it's like we're in an elevator but we're gonna full save we just move yeah. a few inches yeah. over to the side it's like duck and cover for the atomic bomb like this is exactly exactly <laughs> but anyways so they they uh they step out they warm up the sticks and uh and they fail miserably which is the be- again you train your whole life to do this thing and you can't even aim it correctly. You're supposed to be discreet. You're carving blazers into walls. I mean, it's just a calamity of errors before the goopy goodness. Oh, man, they lit it up. They lit up that that housekeeper. And just her response. She's like, what the hell are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were someone else. <laughs> Successful test. Yeah. <laughs> Successful test. <laughs> they, they decide to split up. They can do more damage that way. Way to go, Scooby-Doo gang. But uh, then we just get kind of just, I don't want to say it's a slow burn scene, but just like a nice little saunter. The The score plays nicely as they're perusing this the hallways you get egon walking up on the guy checking out of a room gives him a little two finger shove to see if he's even real if he's the ghost and then uh just ray coming around that corner we lay eyes on slimer for the first time and that cigarette drops it just sticks to his lip that that is the reason that i i I smoke cigarettes for half of my life is because of this goddamn movie but god damn it like half this movie is cigarettes i swear to god it's crazy because there's like none in the second one yeah they they took it out of the second one yeah because they wanted to make the second one more kid friendly well one of the things that's crazy about this scene it meanders but that's the point is that it meanders Mm -hmm. because they don't have a plan they've never done this they're so ill-equipped to handle this they're just like, oh, they don't even know what would be a ghost. If not for the fact that it was green and glowing, which is originally just supposed to be a vapor. It's crazy to me to think, what would you do? It's awesome. Exactly. And it just, I mean, he does the first thing that comes to mind. He opens fucking fire. and This thing just takes off, goes through a wall, and he just goes running after it. And I just love the amount of collateral damage that they do in just such a short amount of time. Like, he turns the thing on twice, and he's already hit a housekeeper, destroyed her cart. Then, it like, he's blasted a whole diner cart into, like, the wall of this hotel that's just 
cracked all the molding, shattered glass from the dishes everywhere. There's burn holes all over the wall. And it's like, dude, they haven't even touched it yet. And then we get we get our look over to Bill Murray, and he comes around a corner and, oh, guess who's waiting? And he radios for Ray, and we get a, a brilliant little interchange of dialogue. Just, uh, he's right here, Ray. He's he's looking at me. He's an ugly little spud, isn't he? <laughs> I think he can hear you, Ray. And then just that zoom, that effect of Slimer, just that noise that Ivan Reitman gives this character. It's so otherworldly and just so effective. And the build of the orchestra, just the dun 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 dun. And we, we, discover bill murray looking like a jizz sock on the ground he slimed me actual physical contact it, it's it, it's just like it, the misplaced excitement it, again it's the logic and the emotion don't know where to go and that's the response you get and he he, he radio spangler he says i'm with vinkman he got slimed like it's it's the most exciting thing it's fucking christmas morning then they, they get word okay come down here he just went into a ballroom so... one of the shots in the ballroom it is literally a green a paint like a spray painted peanut twirled around out of focus yep. to get the effect that's how little budget they had and how ingenuous they like it just like they figured it out. I think that's the coolest thing. Yeah, because uh, the the regular puppet for Slimer was like four feet tall in itself. It had someone inside the costume. Those arms were someone's arms. Then there were two other people working the tongue and the facial muscles. And it was just it was very fluid versus the choices they made in Ghostbusters, too. But we'll we'll touch on that. But um, yeah, they needed to make a smaller puppet to get that effect where they just ended up using the peanut because they couldn't build one small enough. And that's that's genius. Just shoestring budget making it work. I love how they go and let the hotel manager know, oh, uh, we've got this all under control. Meanwhile, like, Venkman is hidden in shadows, just dripping in slime. We'll handle this. And then they go in and they just flip every table. The flowers are still standing. Like, is just... It, that whole scene is just perfect. And it just... It says a lot about them as characters in the movie. It's like, hey, we're indispensable at this moment, so we're going to take advantage. We're going to do whatever the fuck we got to do to make this happen. Well, I, I'd say it's actually the opposite. I think it's that they don't even care about the consequences because of what it is. And then they fail upwards at the end because then they get to rely on Bankman. It's like, all right, we'll let it go. You want, we'll just let it go back and then you can have it yeah. because you could tell that ho that consigliere or concierge is certainly not paying for any of these things until then. No. That's the first no. time in this movie they have any power or authority and they yeah. fail miserably up until then. And then it's awesome how they capitalize on it immediately. You notice too, they don't even know the price. You kind of see like uh, yeah. looking at Egon. He's like, he's like, how much is it going to be? 3000 And then they're going to say, mm -hmm. like he's, he's signaling the thousand for proton charging. <laughs> well, it's hilarious. Again, they had no plan on what to do when they were there. They had no plan on how to monetize it, but they were still advertising and doing all this stuff. It's like a lot of podcasters and stuff were like, oh, well, we just we just do the thing. We make money. And we just do the thing. And it, it, it takes off. People listen because I put it out a podcast. No, no, not true at all. <laughs> Everything requires planning, even just talking into a microphone in a garage. The passion I have for this film and talking about it is going to be two days of editing, no doubt. But I'm for it. You know, yeah. it's time. It's, Quote it's me. Effort. We will never do Monster Squad because I will painstakingly go over every syllable and go, 
Now I'm going to need you guys to come into the studio and do re-edits. Uh, Aid, you didn't say this properly. You need you had too much sibilance in the S sound, so we're going to need to do it. Not happening. You know what? And that is why I'm handing over the reins to the the sleigh by play at this point because I, I'm going to keep hitting every note. Someone take the reins. I think the montage is a great talking point to start with. Okay, so there's a whole montage at, at some point, right? So this is right afterwards, and it shows them going after all of the ghosts, and then they uh, the they montage. even show what's going on with Dana. Yeah, right. Is it is this the time where they they do the the Ghostbusters song, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Can anybody cool. guess Jake's favorite ghost in the film? My wife got it accurately. Oh wait, wait, wait. Say so taxi cab ghosts, maybe. Bing. Oh yes. They're like zombie-looking so ones. Yeah, it's just so effective. Great. He's just such a simple puppet. And you don't yeah. need a huge payoff. You don't yeah. need all the craziness because your imagination goes so much farther. Just it, it peels out and you're like, oh, that guy's going to have a bad day. Yeah. I think my favorite, <laughs> I have to say, is a specific Slimer puppet. It's the one with the hot dogs in his mouth. That's a good one. It's just, mm. it's just, it's got character. So they go through and the montage, and this is where they hire uh, Winston at this point, right? So they hire the fourth member because they need another person to help them. They're doing all of this work. So this is where we finally get to see uh, Winston. Unfortunately, it was, and like how long in the movie is this into probably half an hour longer than that? I'd say about there. Yeah, I think it's 27 minutes, but yeah, about half, which sucks. I'm going to be honest with you. And also, he would have been an engineer in the beginning. Like Adam said, he would have mm-hmm. had military experience. He, he brought a lot to the table. And the engineering experience was going to help when it came to constructing everything. But then he's just a guy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, have, I, I feel a sense of responsibility because you guys know my longstanding love of Axel Foley, Beverly Hills Cop, Axel F, mm-hmm. all of it. Yeah. And that's why Eddie Murphy's not in this movie. Yeah, Sorry, guys. It's my movie. fault. I know. I was thinking that when I read that, I'm like, this is all Jake. So, no, I cannot. Um, <laughs> I mean, he, Hudson did build a career off successful cult roles. I mean, just, the, I mean, what was it? Airheads. I mean, The Crow, just everything. He's just, he's a fan's actor very much. Yeah. He does a good but, job of being likable, authoritative. Like, he does a really good job. Yeah, yeah, he's doing he's doing some like uh like Holiday Inn uh, or like those Hallmark movie the the Christian movies like God's Not Dead. I, he's in one of those movies now. I want to see God's Not Dead yet because or because Winston Zeddemore took him and he's in a trap. <laughs> I hope he's in it just to like scold some little Christian kid and be like, if someone asks if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> So I'm moving along. We get over to the uh, this finally where we meet Walter Pack, the at the EPA, and he is uh, suspicious of what's going on. So he comes in to evaluate their equipment. At some point, we know that Egon like is comparing the equipment to the Twinkie, which is like my favorite part when he talks about the Twinkie, and then Winston's like, "Oh, did you hear about the Twinkie? Yeah, or whatever." Like, I, I'm so Twinkie, bad at Twinkie, thirty-five <laughs> feet long, weighing approximately six hundred pounds. Yeah, <laughs> so that which... was cute. That doesn't seem proportionate, right? Only 600 pounds. I feel like somebody needs to double check that map. That person's not me, but somebody. I mean, what's the structure of the cake, though? I mean, are we doing scale cake? Is there air pockets in the sponge? It could be. You never like, know. That's no saving anything. That that wouldn't last two weeks in a trailer park in Alabama somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't last in Adam's fucking living room with how much weed he smokes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> 
I consume oh, two a year, thank you. You'd be like the old lady in Patch Adams and the thing of noodles. You'd just be like rubbing Twinkie on yourself with your good arm. <laughs> I'd crawl through it like a fucking fun tunnel. Yeah, he'll come out he'll come out looking like Slimer's cum sock. Oh, oh my god. god. About it. <laughs> this is the life I choose. So anyways, so we go through Egon's talking about how the containment is near capacity, and then and meanwhile, Bankman is waiting outside of Dina's uh, musical thing that she did, right? So whatever. Yeah, orchestra practice. Orchestra, but yeah, band practice. Why couldn't I think of that? Like, I'm telling you, I'm losing it. Yeah, band practice sounds a little informal, and like you're in a screamo band versus orchestral rehearsal. Yeah. When I used to play the clarinet, like, it was bam. Anyways, okay. So, rehearsal. Okay, so she's leaving rehearsal with this guy who clearly likes her. And she has to go, you know, meet with uh, Bankman to find out what's going on with the case. Because, it, you, not that uh, we forget it, but remember at the, at, at the beginning, like, they had told Dana that they were going to research who Gozer was and do all this stuff. Like, there's things that they can do. And I'm thinking, why is it taking this long for him to, like, come by and say, oh, by the way, I mean, I know there's no Google or anything, but... Well, I think it's great because it shows that they're not really doing anything. He doesn't no. have an update for her. He just likes her. And yeah, that's what it is. Because he, and yeah. even when they <laughs> are doing stuff, he's not the one doing it. It's Ray. Mm. It's Egon. They're doing mm -hmm. work. They're the ones getting fucking schematics versus Venkman who's just walking around with his hands in his pockets. It's great. He's just a messenger. He's He's got the paper. He's like, what's this word? The, uh, the uh, hit, hit, Hittites. The, the Hittites. Hittites, yeah. <laughs> she yeah. says the Hittites. <laughs> I know, he's such an ass. and Sumerians. Oh my god, he's terrible. Uh, but anyways, Fun we found out that... Fun fact. Uh, uh, I just wanted to interject one thing. No, he's given her the information, but um, Gozer was actually taken from a historic haunting. In Enfield, England, in 1977, the word Gozer was found written on the walls and uh, objects throughout oh, yeah, the house. Oh yeah, all over the house. Yeah, I was reading mm -hmm. that. Yeah, it's that poltergeist girl, wasn't it? Or that, that house that had the poltergeist. I think Conjuring 2 did that. Too. Yeah, yeah the Enfield poltergeist. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't bad. I What's crazy, like, if you would have taken that nowadays, it would just be like Banksy or like some street artist who tagged up everything in the house. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, are, you, are you a minion of Banksy? <laughs> I just bought someone a Banksy poster for... Christmas. I guess that's a yes. Whatever. Anyways, um, so this is where we figure out or find out who Zul is, um, the demigod worshipped as a servant to Gozer, the Gozerian, which is a shape-shifting god of destruction, which is obviously foreshadowing to later in the film. He makes a date with her, so she agrees to go on the date, and it's so cute because, like, that's the same night that Lewis has his party, and she's like, I can't go to the party, Lewis. I have a date. And he's so you sweet. You have a date? Yeah. Tonight? <laughs> Okay. He's so sweet. He's like, oh, bring him over. <laughs> Poor Lewis. But she doesn't care enough about his feelings to lie and say that she had a date before. She just crushes him. Yeah, yeah. She just tells him that. And, you know, he's like, oh, just bring him by or whatever. So I thought that was sweet. Um, right. And this is where she's, like, getting ready and she's, you know, bitching at her mom on the phone. And then she sits down in the chair and this is like the part that we were all discussing earlier with the hands coming up, pulls her into the kitchen. That is really terrifying, especially with the hands, like just sitting in the chair. Oh my God. 
I think I had nightmares when I was a little kid. The cinematography that. of that whole scene, just the lighting, how it casts with the smoke coming out of the kitchen when that door opens and you just see the glowing eyes on that terror dog. It's mm. just everything about that scene is so cool. Like each one of those arms is somewhat different. It's it's just a lot of character. Mm. A really haunting scene just executed so well. And then uh, meanwhile, we're at the party across the hall and Liz does his little spiel about the salmon and the, the people coming in. And, and that one girl who wanted to the dance brie. with him, she was cute, the Brie, yeah. Um, and Liz, then I'm going home. <laughs> see, see, here's another reference too. I always thought that was Audrey from Little Shop of Horrors when I was a kid. I was oh, like, oh my yeah, God. And she does the same thing, I'm going ah, home. It but all makes see, sense. Yeah, it's a good thing Sigourney Weaver. Uh, it was before, yeah, Little Shop of okay. Horrors, I think, came out in 87. But, oh. uh, yeah, it's a good thing Sigourney okay. Weaver didn't go because uh, then uh, he wouldn't be able to go on his spiel about, he's like, oh, I could use this party and food as a tax write-off because I invited clients instead of friends. Yeah. <laughs> Just and all of that was, like, improvised. Brilliant yeah. touch. Um, but this is where the, the the dog at that point comes in, breaks into the into the party, right, and comes flying in, <laughs> and he thinks it's a bear and he's running. And it's probably the funniest part where he gets out of the uh, building and he's in front of the restaurant. He's trying to get no. Everyone looks at him, and then he, like he falls, and then they all go back to eating. <laughs> well, see so another funny thing too. Like it's it's just so funny. I don't know if you guys had that same reaction too. It's when the when the uh, terror dog jumps out in the hallway, and that old lady opens the door, and she's like, "Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> right back in." My grandfather's <laughs> favorite part of the film, right there. I don't. It's so simple, but it's so fucking funny. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's the great stuff of like only in New York. You're like, they're so desensitized. It's like, nah, not doing it. Nope. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so um, it goes on from there. Uh, we realize that uh, Bankman comes to see Dana and she's Zool at this point, which by the way, her outfit, her hair and her makeup on point. Oh my gosh. <sighs> and she seduces Honey. him or tries to, and he's not having it. Like he realizes something is wrong and she's floating in the bed and he's just watching her. Good on him. What? Which is like the one redeeming part of him. Yeah. You know, like, because he's obviously, he's yeah. just lurid and gross throughout the rest of the movie. But when given the opportunity, he doesn't actually do it. And sure, like, you could take that as like a sense of cowardice or like cuckolding himself basically by not being able to commit. But I think uh -huh. the point is that this has all been a little bit tongue in cheek. So sure, it's a little bit of locker room talk kind of, but at least this is redeeming because he doesn't actually... Uh, master that gate no no and he knows it's not her so he's he's aware um and then i think he he sedates her but at the meantime uh the police decide to bring lewis over to the rest of the ghostbusters <laughs> dropping <laughs> like, off or picking what, up what kind of police are these just like hey, well he's just saying all this weird shit so you take him like what is that but okay that's perfect is what that is <laughs> And this is where we realize that uh, Vince or Vince Clortho or, you know, Lewis is actually the key master that Zool is waiting for. So they decide to keep them separated and he puts Dana to sleep and leaves her. OK. Um, and then meanwhile, uh, Peck finally comes back to shut everything down. And this is where Lewis escapes and the confusion um, and makes his way to join Zool. At that point, the explosion and all the ghosts get out, so that's that's a fun little touch or a little part. Mm. You want to know my uh, my theory on the Mr. Peck? My theory is that he was so <laughs> reviled after this incident 
that he went into like a witness protection with the EPA, changed his name, and created the Biodome Project so that he could create a space station for habitation in yes! outer space wherein there it's are canon. no ghosts because nobody has died Yo, in outer Pauly space. Shore is going to be a Ghostbuster. Shared universe with Polly Shore. Now you're going to say he turned into Russ Cargill. Well, he wasn't that the EPA guy from the Simpsons movie <laughs> made a dome around space. Yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, just it, Rick yeah. Moranis is just his whole performance at that point like when they're just like checking him out and they've got the colander on his head and again just another brilliant prop just homemade it's a colander with a bunch of resistors and wires and stuff like that just when he's sniffing the popcorn bowl and like he's like licking got the pizza on his face dude it's just so good he commits yeah he hands Egon the lamp and Egon's like oh thank you <laughs> Sniffs the horse and stuff. Yeah. And his, his mannerisms, like he's walking funny, but like he's not intimidating at all. Like John Candy would be intimidating. He could overpower any of these guys. He is so dinky and tiny that it's this quaintness of like, oh, you think that you're, I know. you think you're a big old monster dog boy. Uh, also, the colander prop, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, reminds me exactly of Blank Man, or I guess rather Blank Man reminds me of this. Mm. <laughs> All right, so moving along. Um, so the Ghostbusters are arrested at this point. Their containment unit was deactivated. At that point, they figure out that the apartment building was like ran by a cult, right? And that's why it came and possessed Dana, right? They just don't build them happening. like they used to. They never built them like this. That's just such a great, you know, like this is not something, there's no explanation. But it's great because so often you have Venkman being cynical the whole movie, whether it's the stacking of the books or what have you. And it gets to this and it's like, look, look, Pete, no, this is a conduit to another world that is meant to tear space and time apart. It's pretty heavy for a comedy, right? So, uh, but they do it so cute. You know, they're just really cute about it. So at that point, they, the, the, yeah, the mayor, they, they go and talk to the mayor and, uh, you know, Peck is freaking out, a.k.a. Dickless. And that's actually how I didn't write his name down when I did the characters. I just wrote Dickless there because I was like, I couldn't remember his name. And then um, <laughs> he goes and so they throw, the, the mayor throws uh, Peck out of the room and uh, Bill Murray is like, I'm going to miss him. Like, I love that. Like, that is so cute. The smarm all over his face is just, oh, it's, it's gorgeous. It's such a great scene. And one thing I really like when they basically recreate the same dynamic in Ghostbusters 2, it could be really hacky. But I love that they get institutionalized in two versus imprisoned in one, which, again, because yeah, it, it, it's hacky to do the same thing, but it's fun to do it in a different way. Mm -hmm. Because in this, he's allowed to be really smarmy. He's allowed because he, objectively he's right. Mm -hmm. When you get to the psychological element of it, he just the only thing he can do to help himself is to keep his mouth shut, which is the exact opposite. So Yeah. He's always going to poke the bear. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, anyways, they decide to, to go strap up and get going um and of course the whole city is watching it which i find hilarious like the whole city is out and cheering them on and ground opens up and they fall in but they get back out again and then they uh finally get up into the building and it's so funny they have to go up all those stairs <laughs> that shot just the vertigo from that shot is it, it's just so good and you just feel for him because just lugging those packs up an entire skyscraper. And I mean, she lives on the 22nd floor mm -hmm. and then they got to go up from there to the roof. And yeah. it's like, oh, none of these guys have a stairmaster. I'll tell you that right now. These are not firemen. That's not fine because now, yeah, our elevators broke down a while ago and Dan had to climb from the bottom to the top of the 27th. 
And I could like, he calls me out from like the 20th and he's like, I think I'm going to die. And I opened the door and I looked out, I see him and he's like a gray color, like sweating. Like I never seen him like that before. <laughs> so, um, I don't recommend that to anybody, but anyways. Um, and those hams <laughs> grew three sizes that day. <laughs> I know he used to, he was very athletic, but you know, we get older. So, um, but anyways, what ends up happening? Oh yeah, we see they finally get up to the roof, and uh, Dana and Lewis uh, turn into the to the demon, demonic dog. Um, Gozer appears in front of them. That what is she? Where is she from? I forget. Well, originally, so, oh Slavica, Slavica uh, think, She was a model. Yeah. Originally, uh, they were thinking Grace Jones or Pee Wee Herman for the role. Oh, I remember hearing that too. But I think Grace Jones have been rad. Dude, she is so powerful. Oh, I could see Grace Jones. But she's also in Conan the Destroyer. Came out later this month. Boom. Yeah, see, as a kid, too, I always got confused between Gozer and Trash from the Return of the Living Dead. I always thought they had the same. Oh, oh my yeah, God. <laughs> Holy shit. That makes such a weird boners amount of sense. Oh, boner town for sure. And for the flat top. Quick question. Does Gozer have a, a, a fake crotch plate in this? Prosthetic, vaginalist, Kendall type? surface there was something there was something i did read about her that was prosthetic her outfit is strange it's very bubbly and feels almost like fabric but then goes into feeling like skin but not it's an um, interesting 4k it's like um it, it's that stuff they use for like uh tutus you know like the leggings and yeah stuff, like the mesh you could see yeah. through it yeah it's, it's mesh cool. very ethereal mesh with cotton yeah. balls taped on mm -hmm. <laughs> no seriously that's yeah. what it is and they just put bubbles all over yeah, oh, it's just a simple thing, just layered. It looks awesome. Yeah, I'm trying to find, uh, I don't know. Anyways, we'll talk about that later. But anyway, so at that point, she reveals herself to be Gozer. Um, I thought Gozer was a man. Yeah, I know. And Ray, like she asked Ray, um, Ray like is yelling at her, you know, bad the state of New York, blah, blah, blah. You need to leave or whatever. And uh, he, she's like, are you a god? <laughs> And he says no. no. <laughs> so, uh, and then all hell breaks loose. Then and, die. Spirit yeah, fingers. Yeah, and then die. Literally. So There's in there. They almost, spirit. yeah, they almost fall off the roof. They almost fall off the roof, and then they decide to blast her. And at that point, she disappears. And they hear a voice that asks to choose the form, right? Or choose the form. Yeah, choose the form of the destructor, and they all try to clear their heads, which actually they were talking about some, whatever, there's a plot hole there. that's because, hard to do. That's hard yeah, to do. Because they were discussing right before, oh, she could come up as anything, like, the minute they said something else, and I can't remember what it was, like, it could have came, anyways. It's like, what if you think of just blackness? It's like, does it come as, like, the nothing from the never-ending story, you know? It's like, God damn it, I was just about to say that, you <laughs> son of a bitch, the nothing. Yep. I love you. Aww. That's so funny. Um, what of all the odds, then, the shared cosmic universe that is our brain. Fucking West Coast doppelganger, bruh. <laughs> I'm just Adam in oh shorts. That's all it is. That's I it. Know. You know, I, I'm just Jake who eats burgers and smokes weed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then at that point, the Stay Puffed Marshmallow makes its appearance. Yeah, it's supposed to come up through the water next to the Empire State Building, or, or not the, no, the Statue of Liberty. I was yep, reading from the and, uh, the East River. Yeah, and then it didn't happen, which would have been an homage hard. to Godzilla. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Fun fact: uh, scale the 
Stay Puft Marshmallow Man is exactly 112 and a half feet tall. Ah. And they made three mm-hmm. of them and 20 grand a pop. Pricey. All of which destroyed. Yeah. I know. Even for them, like, oh my God. I tried to think of the most harmless thing, something I love from my childhood, something that could never possibly destroy us. Mr. Stapa. <laughs> I mean, he could have done so much worse, like we were saying. I know, it could have been a Lovecraft nightmare. It could have been just... That's what makes it funny, though, because it's a cute monster, but he's still yeah, fucking exactly. up the city. I mean, have you seen the intro for the real Ghostbusters? It is amazing. I yeah. watched it probably at least once a week, even though I'm not trying to get through the show. And Stay Puft mm-hmm. is in it, and it's just delightful. Yeah. Aww. Dude, I, it's like, I, I don't even know if we've gotten all of those ghosts from that intro in episodes on that show but that that intro is just magic it's like the intro to uh it's the proto intro to rick and morty i could see that for sure well we will get to that on the cartoon day gentlemen um mm. but anyways at that point uh egon instructs them to finally cross the streams insert peepee joke <laughs> you you want to talk about peepees we could talk about how i knew you ray almost that. gets <laughs> ghost sexted mm-hmm. oh yeah i li- deliberately left that out so this is what you call the reverse Chekhov's gun. And I actually think it's really funny because people teach this. In, so, for instance, uh, Chekhov's gun, gremlins, the sword's on the wall. Mm-hmm. One of them falls. I, I use that as a comparison. It's going to go way, off. Right? You know, okay, I know the sword is there. I, it's going to be used. Whereas in this, Egon says, try to imagine all life as you know it stopping instantaneously and every molecule in your body exploding at the speed of light. You don't want to do this, but you have to do it. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Like they teach this in textbooks, man. <laughs> well, you know, they do it. And, uh, you know, you're not sure if they survive at that point Ooh, because you don't see them. Hey, anyway. the door swings both ways. Fun fact, the uh, miniature model of the building that was built for uh, the in-camera explosion when they showed the building exploding, they had to make that out of uh, quarter-inch welded steel just to hold the pyrotechnics to make it look correct in camera. Oh wow! It's fucking impressive. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it looks so good. Like there, that's this movie does those things like the giant epic explosion so beautifully, and like just Dana's apartment building. Most of that is just like matte paintings composited with like a skyline. It's so impressive. Yeah, it was like modeled after another building. But at that point, uh, Gozer or Stay Puft blows up. Everyone gets like they splashed. They all go boom. They get splashed with the marshmallow, especially Dickless, which is really funny. 50 gallons of shaving cream on that bitch. That's a concussion, dude. That's Oh my God, was that, that's what I was going to ask him. Like, what was that? <laughs> he had it coming. <laughs> yeah, dude, he had to get Zinger. floored by that shit. Oh, I, I love that. He didn't that. get semen. Oh, my God. Anyway, uh, this is a children's movie. <laughs> Floor of a taxi cab. <laughs> Semen. It's a great joke. Right? <laughs> and you know exactly how he feels at that moment. Well, hey, if you want to see if kids really like this, uh, next time you're doing an assignment for school uh, for you guys, next time a student you like, you guys turn in your homework? No, I didn't know it was due today. Then you just turn to him and say, then die <laughs> yes i wish yes. <laughs> make sure your hands are apparent at all times so they don't you're not reaching for an actual weapon i know i say show the kids this but then probably block out the ghost blowjob scene because that one is still awkward every time well you know it's interesting because at the end of the year when they're done testing i usually just put a movie on and a couple, like two years ago i played beetlejuice because it was on prime 
and mm. I didn't. Nice fucking model. I yeah. Didn't really, yeah, he just says fuck, fuck, fuck. Like he's yelling fuck. I'm like, oh my fuck. Like what the fuck? I don't remember him saying that. That was like PG too. PG. It was PG. I'm like, oh my god. And I'm looking at the kids, and like it didn't even phase them. Like, oh thank God, because they never even like. I have no idea who the fuck Beetlejuice is now. It's ridiculous. Yeah, so, did I tell yeah. you? I don't know if it was on the podcast I'd said this, but a few years ago I dressed up as Beetlejuice for this party, and the kids thought I was a zombie Robin Thick. Oh yeah, that's oh a- yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. They don't God know anything. I know. God damn the youth. And I, I, I said after that, I was like, "All right, I'm getting ready to clap out." I know. Uh, but at that point, like, uh, so they get up and they, you know, Bankman's really sad because he thinks that Dana's gone because the, the dog is like frozen. But then she breaks out of it and, and they see Lewis getting out and he's like telling the others, like, go help him so he can like help Who her. Who the lights? Yeah. And then they and then they kiss and then they all go downstairs and they save the day and it's daytime again. And uh, they take Dana with them and poor Lewis gets dragged off in the ambulance. And he's like, I want to go with them. And he can't. Poor Lewis. And, uh, and they don't stand up for him. They just let no, it happen. They just, they're like, bye. I'll see you later. Uh, and then our, like Dana just went through the same thing <laughs> and they're keeping her. Yeah. Like just... so... I love that. Bill Murray has like nothing on him in that scene. Like everyone is wearing a shaving yep. cream bodysuit, and he's got like a dab on his bangs and like a little bit. Which on is his, his self-serving idea. You know this. Oh, of course he said it so. Is. Of course it's it brilliant. is. It is. He's like, wouldn't it be funny? But in actuality, he's like, I just don't want to take that shower. Exactly. Oh my god. Um, and then the I, I forgot. Can I just say the most aphoristic and beautiful and succinct line? It's one of my favorites, and I use it as frequently as I'm ever encountering something scary, I'm terrified beyond the capacity for rational thought. It just sums up everything. It says where you're at, man. <laughs> like, I just love it. It's like, don't waste your time asking what I have to say. I cannot. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then the credits roll and they save the day and the, the song comes on and, and yay, everybody's cheering them and just kind of goes from there. So that's the end of our film. Adam, classic, trashic, or tragic? I, I think you're on the fence here. Oh, yeah, so on the fence about, like, creating a new category called the Ultra Classic. Ooh, like, like, a, like a, what is it, holographic Pokemon card version of classic. Yeah, dude, it's definitely limited holofoil kind of film. That's what I'm going to say. It's got a little star in the corner. Okay. Doug, is this also rarefied air for you? This is a classic. This is up there for me with, uh, with, with Return of the Living Dead and, and just that humor and horror that just mixed so well and you know for for a movie that with, with ghostbusters in the title there's not a lot of ghost busting if you think about it you really you only get that slimer scene in the um in the proton pack usage but really that's the only scene besides the the montage stuff and, uh, so yeah with less is more you know everyone just kind of uses their imagination to you know with the ghost trapping and stuff you get more not even not even so much in the sequel but you know it's just it's 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 iconic with the scenes it makes and it makes huge with what little scenes they did use uh, the proton packs and stuff for there was that ghost busting a nut i mean sorry i'm still stuck on troll march man (laughs) (laughs) and adrian eye rolling adrian i know what do you think i was of course it's a classic it's always going to be a classic like it's you know it's it's ghostbusters like i've been singing this song all week I mean, I just, I was so excited, you know, to have to watch that again. And lucky you, I'm still thinking of Spadoinkle Day. Thanks, no. guys. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like so happy that Tro March is over. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, of course it's a, it's going to be it's a classic and and everything that spawned from it, especially you know with the cartoon. Like the cartoon was something that I watched every Saturday morning. It's it was always on. We had all the toys, all the shit for it. I, and even even it still it still impresses on people now. Like for example, you know Stranger Things. Like when all the kids go out for Halloween, right? So. It still like makes its mark today, even without the remake. And again, I, the remake, I don't remember anything that happens in it. So. Yeah. The original is still iconic for what it was. Very often you hear terms couched like at the time, you know, um, and I know I had done the analysis of like if this movie came out then versus now. Um, I think that that's a criticism and critique of like society more so than this movie. Mm-hmm. I don't think this movie needs to change. I think the people's approach to cinema, uh, myself included, you know, I, I have a very short attention span. I have a very short patience. I'm so glad that I saw this movie when I did because it is so enriching every time you see it. Yeah. yeah. Completely a classic. You know, this is the the space on the show. You know, I have Gremlins 2, I have Alien, I have The Fly, I have the, like, there are some of the best movies I've ever seen. And I think that they're just amazing. And you could sit and dissect them. Like, honestly, our audience is going to sit there and I'm sure there's going to be people who are like, wait, how didn't she mention this? Yeah. Buddy, I'm telling you, I'm looking at eight pages of notes. I may have said three of them. There's yeah. so much content. There are. You could do a documentary about how many documentaries people have made about Ghostbusters. That's how iconic it is. Uh, in, in looking forward to what's ahead, like I said at the beginning, we're going to have Ghostbusters 2 next week. Animation the week thereafter. Uh, video games after that. And then uh, the Patreon bonus, which uh, you know, I think I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I'm going to spoil everybody. Uh, you know, we originally, the gag was going to be we were going to torture Adam and make him watch the 2016 <laughs> and do like a mystery science theater of him saying fuck the entire time. We're not going to do that. Uh, based on the feedback of our lovely Patreon patrons, we're changing it. We're going to do a retrospective of the Ghostbusters show, the 1975 show and the filmation show that Adam had referenced earlier. So sorry, it's behind a paywall, but you can get in at any tier, basically. So a dollar a month gets you there. And then more than that, you know, you can do other shit. That's a fun one. That filmation, man, I, I, you'll fall down a rabbit hole of retro TV shows that you forgot existed and you'll uh, you'll you'll find some gems. Yeah, YouTube will be like, hey, you want to watch that Herbie the Buggy thing? And you're going to be like, what? And then it's like Jabberjaw and Snorks. And you're going to be like, God damn it, stop. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait, that existed. Oh, my God. And then you'll be obsessed so, with the banana splits and say like, oh, the new horror film of the banana splits is an inferior product. It's all a chain reaction, man. So sign up for the Patreon, you know. But guys, I want to say thank you for doing this. It just Ghostbusters Month in general. This movie is so dear to my heart. And just to be talking about it so passionately with people who just care about it. It's bucket list. Thank you. Oh, that's so sweet. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm very happy to do it. I'm very happy to be able to show our fans something that's a little bit more main. I'm not going to say mainstream in a bad way. Maybe a little more iconic than our Trill March. Our numbers reflected it, but thanks for sticking with us. I appreciate it. It's cool. Well, <laughs> wait till Ghostbusters two. You want to, that's a double penetration of terror and editing. So <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be a fun discussion. I feel. Uh... So if you'd like to patronize us, aside from Patreon, you can always check out our Redbubble, slasherspod.redbubble.com. You can buy all sorts of fun things. The logo behind me on the Patreon video package will actually be on a shirt that you could put on your tits. It's going to be pretty sweet. You can also find us at Instagram. We have otherboy underscore art. We have pathologically ADE. We have Doug Bizarro. And we have me, who was formerly Gacy Jones, but got locked out of my account this morning. I'm very <gasps> excited about it. So you can find me at Slasherspod. It's going to be rad. Uh, make sure to check all of our episodes on there is no april only zool 
goodbye and good die. Hey, do you flatulent mongooses? Wait, mongoose. Mon people. Remember how Ghostbusters was partially inspired by Bob Hope's movie, The Ghost Breakers? Well this week's hidden track is a band called Love Breakers. Pretty neat right? It is almost like I planned this after I did lines of robo-cocaine off of your Padre's well-oiled chest. This song is called I Roller. It should have been called Adrienne, because that girl be rolling them eyes, am I right players? Anyway, you can find Love Breakers virtually everywhere online if you use the very same Google machine you found this episode with. Enjoy. I roll.